Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you with us today. If you're watching on YouTube, you remember you can always find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour, consistently a general discussion of production and IT related topics as we answer audience submitted questions. If you wanna get questions in, there's a system for doing that. So check the website and it'll lead you right to being able to do that. The second hour, typically a deeper dive into a topic. And today we're very excited. Larry O'Connor of OWC, the fabulous provider of uh, hard drives and memory and all sorts of things that many of us use here is going to be our special guest in the second hour, and we're really excited about that. So, uh, Mitch, that's the billboard for what's happening on the show. Let's dive right into our questions. What have we got today? All right, Bill, kicking it off is Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking thoughts about the new Blackmagic Design TV Studio Switcher IP Signal Acquisition. What codecs are they using? I don't know what codex. We all uh, had a watch party yesterday and watched the Blackmagic Design announcement. There were a lot of interesting things discussed. So let's start with Chris Fenwick this morning. Chris? I'm not the best person to answer this, but Alex isn't here. So, you know, more me time. Um, the, what I thought was super interesting, and I've always said this, I, thought, I think that Grant is fantastic. He's a great demo person. He's super knowledgeable, obviously. Uh, he knows his products, obviously, but the fact that he demos them as well as he does always amazes me. My favorite part was when he showed the phone connection gimmick, he, he flat out said, not really sure how people are going to use this, but it's pretty cool. You know? And so I think that's, that's a daring thing to like, and maybe he's, you know, blowing smoke, but, um, it's a daring thing to like put all that time and R&D into making a thing work and like meh, not really sure how how this is going to get used. It, you'd think he'd have that more thought out, but uh, I thought the demonstration I also think it's and maybe it's just cuz I, I I don't work one man band stuff, but uh the fact that all those audio controls are on the switcher, like I don't know many TDs that know the difference between a compressor and an EQ. Well, it'd be interesting. I agree with you. When he did that, I think everybody lit up a little bit. But for those of you who didn't see the demo, he had a one of the new Blackmagic 6K Pros that they announced yesterday. And you can literally attach a phone to it. And when you attach a phone to it, you can literally broadcast right out of the, the camera onto the web. So I think a lot of people went, well, <laughs> and it'll be interesting to see how that falls out. Mitchell Hill. I agree with uh, Chris. I think Ron did a uh, great job. And he did it all upside down because he did everything from the opposite side of the table. So you really got to know your product, to do an upside down uh, demo. Great job. Um, as far as the codecs go, boy, when they were uh, running that uh, phone, um, it seems like that's going to be some flavor RTMP with uh, an H264 uh, in order to push that much data over a uh, phone connection. Um, I'm not really excited about that because I don't like uh, editing 264 but the ISO does that, so why not? Yeah, there you go. Next question. Oh, I'm sorry, John Preto. We got two more people here. John, when he when he mentioned it had this thing and it had that thing and this thing and this thing, he mentioned the streaming bridge, and the streaming bridge uses H.264. There you go, George Kennedy. George, good to see you this morning. Good morning. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure who this uh, unit is targeted to, but I think um, I think a lot of us are thinking along the lines of NDI right now. When obviously Blackmagic is not going that route. But uh, I want to see how this is going to play out because obviously they're going in their own direction with IP. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah, they're, I think they're trying to make a market that's kind of separate, but very powerful. Courtney? 
Yeah, I think you mentioned it. I looked at the uh, operation manual. Only the ISO version of it, the more expensive one, has the uh, streaming bridge. <clears throat> he mentioned it like seven streaming br or eight streaming bridges built in, so it can take up to eight virtual inputs over the um, over the internet. And again, for those of you who didn't see the announcement, it 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 basically was created. The announcement was about the the new switcher they have coming out. A um, a reimagining of one of their existing switcher lines, but he was attaching the Blackmagic new camera to it and talking about all the capabilities of that switcher. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, if you're looking for, he, he mentioned specifically some markets like education and other things, but I think there's going to be a wide variety of people who want to do video. And if you're in the Blackmagic ecosystem, it provides kind of an end-to-end, -end, really robust multi-camera switching possibility that is pretty darn well thought out. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, more to come as we learn more about it since it was announced just yesterday. Let's go to the next question. Guy Cochran from Seattle, Washington. What's a piece of software or mobile app that you think everyone should know about and use or be ready to use in their productions? Let's start with the Javier. Haven't seen you in a while. It's great to see you, Javier. Great to see you too. Well, I have three quick ones. Uh, the first one is called Sun Surveyor. It's an iOS app that shows you the position of the sun at the moment and at different uh, times and different uh, uh, like uh, across the year. So you can plan really well where is the sun gonna come from to you if it comes from this side, from the other side. The second one is Filmic Pro because it it, uh, it sometimes it, it's great to have like an extra camera for shooting some stuff and Filmic has a lot of controls. I really like it. Uh, and the third one is more like a workflow, but Frame.io, I really tried to put Frame.io in all my uh, work, um, li like workflows with clients and with different editors because you can really uh, like work into things and note everything. And uh, it's a great uh, like submission and review uh, software. So those are my three top ones. I'm going to plus one on Sun Surveyor because I've been using it for years and I love it. Tom Ferguson. Well, keeping it simple from the start, I think you need to know the Notes app, in and out. Uh, the Notes app can not only keep your notes, but you can also do drawings, take photos within, and it can keep you on track. I'll see him nodding in the panel here. George Kennedy? Guy, I'm going to go with the, the live production industry part of it. Stream Deck, companion. Um, I can't... Every show I go to, I have companion, I have a stream deck. It just ties everything together. It's kind of scary because it's it's a it's not a mainstream piece of software. I mean, it's kind of is, but it's not. But um, stream uh, companion just ties everything together right now for me. Excellent, John Preto. Everybody needs one of these. Got to have what? a soundboard. Oh, a, a mixer. Soundboard I, I, Pro. Okay. Didn't work, John. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I had I didn't have original sound on. I'll replay. Sorry. Ah, there we go. So a sound effects insert keypad. Uh, it's key interesting that Zoom decided to completely uh, eliminate that as noise. <laughs> Keely, help us, save us from going down this tunnel. Uh, I don't think I can. I was actually delighted at that piano, but I'm going to recommend uh, Speedify as a piece of software that so many people are finding incredibly useful to save their live streams. And I know that uh, everybody who's using it is just raving about it. I usually have fantastic internet, but I have bought it anyway, because when I travel, I know I'm going to need to combine multiple sources in order to get the kind of performance that I'm used to. Very nice. Thank you. All right, let's go to the next question. 
Craig Kadoki from Toronto, Canada. New Blackmagic Design TV Studio, XLR in, MADI out, ClearCom integration, remote internet camera control, super sources, and ISA records. Did they miss anything you were looking for? Let's start with Mitchell, and then John, and then Tom. So, Mitchell? Really hoping for that uh, video player. They've got a 2 gigabyte memory stick inside of it now, so why? Why? Why not? Uh, let's go to John Preto. Video player in 4K. I can't believe this thing's not 4K. Their old one was. Hmm. Tom Ferguson? I wanted it to come in two pieces. You know, that control surface, love the T-bar, but I want to put all the electronics in a rack. Hmm. Courtney Gooden? Yeah, I agree with Mitch. The uh, I looked at the uh, instruction manual. You have up to 400 seconds of media playback built in with a two-terabyte card. Yeah. 400 seconds. Yeah. 400 seconds. Dividing by 60 is not my strong suit. I'm confused Same here. as the old. George Kennedy? I'm going to go on Tom's side. I'm kind of torn. I kind of like having my pieces in a rack, but I think the board is, is fine. Um, 4K, I'm not sure... If we're going to see 4K this year in that unit, I mean, NAB is in a couple of weeks, but um, I think everyone is looking for 4K. Chris Fenwick. I, I think the argument about that is the isn't the TV studio line all 1080? Am I am I wrong? Uh, and then, yes, they sell 4K switchers. You can get a 4K switcher. This is not it. This is a another thing, right? Am I wrong? The old one. The old one was 4K out of production. Ah, Courtney? Well, the TV studio, uh, HD, was all 1080. But um, they did have a 4K switcher, yes, but not the television studio line. And I made a mistake. I misspoke. It's not 400 seconds. It's 400 frames. It's even less. Oh, there's there's a little difference there. <laughs> okay. You only have to divide by 30 or 24 or 29. Anyway, that, let's move to the next question. From Venice, California, is John Patton asking Alex, has mentioned a preference for a more affordable and more comfortable alternative to the Apple AirPods for daily use. Can you please remind me of the brand and model name and retailer where I can purchase them? Thank you. Nigel's going to help us out. Nigel? One always is nervous of speaking for Alex, so I will speak for myself and think what we're talking about is the ultimate ears, uh, ultimate ears fit. For some reason, not readily apparent, I got the purplish one. I think I wanted the white or black, but somehow I got a purplish one. You put them in your ears, you turn them on, they form around your ear cavities. And that's what I think he was talking about. I will put a link in the uh, chat. Do you, you wear them for long periods of time, Nigel? I'm interested because I find uh, that I get a little airflow around my AirPods Pro. And so for relatively long exercise sessions, an hour or two hours, something like that, uh, I, I don't end up with very much, how do I put this? Uh, kindly, uh, too much moisture in the ear canal, which can lead to other things. So do they do they seal off entirely? I have to tell you, I don't use them for very long periods of time. If I'm listening for very long periods of time, I use over-the-ear uh, headphones. Uh, I tend to use these for listening to music if I'm around the house. I, I prefer the Apple AirPods for uh, phone conversations. But the, these are very comfortable if you're, you're listening to music and doing stuff because they Excellent. fit your ear so you can move around a lot. But I wouldn't Tom. wear them for anything for more than an hour. Okay. Tom Ferguson? And if Alex has to walk around all day, talk on the phone and so forth, he's using these Bluetooth headphones by Shox. Uh, you can, uh, it's got great noise uh, 
reduction on it so that you can sound like you're uh, having a private conversation, but you may be still walking around the set. So there you go. You can get them from Shocks or Amazon. Chris Fenwick. Uh, yes. Uh, 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 Nigel, how much are those things, uh, those uh, that you were talking about? I think 169-ish. Okay. I got to say, even with the the one fallacy that the AirPod, AirPod Jordans, whatever these are called, um, uh, the, the biggest problem is when you have too many Apple devices and it's like, ooh, got to talk to you, got to talk to you. I think they should implement a, a button or a tap or something where you could just cycle through all the active blue Bluetooth things around you so I could go phone, computer, car, or whatever, whatever the different things are, uh, or you know your Apple TV. I think that would be fantastic, and I think that's probably a limitation of the Bluetooth protocol. But I will say that this is the best technology, consumer electronic technology I've purchased in like 20 years. I think these things are amazing. John Preto has a weird ear, so he doesn't like them. But I fall asleep in them. This just I love the there's there's like a comfort that I feel like I'm when I put them on, I put the noise canceling on, I feel like I'm sitting underneath a pile of sound blankets and I like being under a lot of sound blankets. I love the silence that they offer. I I love these things. I favorite thing I've bought in two decades. I'm lucky because mine fit me as well, but I've heard from other people who they don't. And boy, if you're in the category where it doesn't work, there's nothing more annoying than that. Let's move on to the next question. Maxfield Hunt in San Francisco, California, asking, maybe revisit AR VR scanning options beyond the iPhone's capability, and where might one procure such a device in Northern California looking to scan a World War II victory ship located in the San Francisco Bay? I'm not even going to touch that because Alex is, uh, I believe, a national authority on this because he's done so much LIDAR scanning and things like that. And every time he speaks here on the show about it, I learn a ton. Uh, so I really think that this is one of those odd circumstances where uh, I know, Maxfield, it would be great if we could do this for you today. But I really think you should come back when Alex is here because he knows a ton about this subject and he will give you extraordinary advice about it. You also may put something in Discord. He watched that very closely and maybe you can get him to ping back javier has a thought in in between javier well my thought is about the ios app for pdfs handwriting but i can somebody advance the right question now. bill next oh, question. Uh, okay let's go to the next question there you go hasma gajar from cape town south africa asking looking for an ipad app that converts handwriting to text in a pdf within said app Open PDF and notes and tried this and it has an odd behavior. Any suggestions? Javier. Okay. Uh, I will try using Notability. Notability is an, iOS, an iPad app that is over note taking. Uh, I think it has a vibration, but you can import PDFs and you can, uh, with the, you can like select a, a song where you want to write and you can do handwriting with the Apple Pencil that would translate it to, to text. And then you can export the PDF. It has a free version. So try it and maybe it will help you. Excellent. Uh, Harshid. Yeah, so in the accessibility space, there's an app called Waystream uh, Writer specifically, and that it is basically a multitude of apps, it's reader, writer, and um, I forget the third one that they have, but uh, 
you may try the voice stream reader part or the writer part of it um, to see if you could get text uh, pulled off a little bit easier that way. And um, each app will give you a little bit of a background to what they have in the app store, the iPhone app store. Hopefully this is getting better and better for people who need the service. Uh, let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, uh, what niche do you see the new ATEM television studio high def fitting into, and why haven't we seen a Constellation 4K yet? Mitchell, start us off. Well, the good news, uh, Douglas, is there is a Constellation 4K. Uh, anything that has the HD moniker is a 1080 device. And uh, as far as the niche goes, I think it's already uh, ready to occupy the same niche that our A10 Mini Extremes do. It's just sort of an updated version with a lot less buttons. Courtney. I see it for a lot of uh, uh, smaller venues like uh, local television stations can put in a van and put out there to do, you know, local uh, high school sports, things like that, sports venues, schools, training, uh, training facilities. It's going to fill a lot of uh, uh, facilities like that that do, you know, HD training and need remote, uh, a remote situation since it can uh, communicate over cellular and send it signal and can stream live from the unit itself. Uh, it'd be very handy to do for uh, uh, local sports and local TV stations. And Alex is here. Alex. Yeah, sorry, I had some technical issues this morning. Um, the uh, I think that for some of us, the announcement, I mean, it's exciting. They've got a bunch of things that are going to make things a lot easier. And I think that you're absolutely right that it's going to be something that for people doing kind of bread and butter work, um, it's, it's, a, it's a great piece of hardware that puts a lot of stuff together. I think for those of us who felt like app, that Black Magic was doing things that were aspirational, you know, like that we could grow into. Uh, it doesn't seem like that's their focus. <laughs> so their focus is they've kind of figured out what their niche is and they're kind of just really making sure that they serve that niche um, inside of that. But they're not, you know, like we're, we're not seeing a lot of new 4K stuff. We're not seeing things that are, you know, the, the, it has some stuff that is, is, is good. It's, it's, it's like, it's good. You know, like, so the switcher is like, it's not a switcher that, like, for instance, that I would get. <laughs> it's a switcher that, you know, but if you're doing a lot of smaller corporate stuff, um, I think that it would, you know, or educational or those kinds of things, which has become their kind of something that's making a lot of money for them. I think that what really showed that up was the A10 Mini, you know, the numbers that they sold of the A10 Mini and the Mini Extreme. This is like a, a transitional product. So what, we, what I'm, people like me are hoping for is that we see something more aggressive before we go to, you know, at NAB or going to NAB. Um, than than what we have here, and they're just pre-releasing this to kind of set things up because it's it's uh, yeah we we kind of went from a constellation 8K to to something that is much more tame. <laughs> so so we'll so we'll uh, we'll see how it goes. Next question from Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking new Cloud Lifter X with 36 dB of gain. Thoughts on using this with an SM7B? Mitchell, what do you think? Our general consensus with any of these devices to provide uh, extra gain in out of your microphone into your uh, preamp is that if there's any noise there, it's going to multiply that noise problem too. So best only to use that in a last resort where you just can't get enough volume out of your microphone. But I haven't seen that happen yet. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, 100% where Mitch is. Uh, I would say that I would never use a cloud lifter as a normal pipeline, I've had I had I have cloud lift lifters in my case, and that's if if all else goes wrong, I can get the gain up. But I would never ever build it into a, a standard pipeline. It adds way too much noise to the signal. Next question 
And we brought this one back in just for you, Alex, for Maxfield Hunt in San Francisco. May we revisit the AR VR scanning options beyond the iPhone's capability, and where might one procure such a device in Northern California? Looking to scan a World War II victory ship located in the San Francisco Bay. Alex, you're. I'm glad you're back because you're the guy for this. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So the um, that is most likely the. Uh, it's it's in Richmond, Richmond, I believe. It's a victory, um, uh, victory ship there. Um, and uh, I believe that, I mean, I just did some research before the show. So, so anyway, so the, um, uh, but I think that you're going to need something more than just a phone. And the problem really is, is it's too complex. There's too many things. It's too large and too complex to do with a phone. The phone's really good for a room or two uh, in, in doing those things, but it has a very short range, 25 feet. Um, so um, the best thing to do is to, is to figure out who you can partner with that might have a real LiDAR um, system. So uh, BLK A360 is what I have. And we should talk because it's only 20, like Richmond is only 20 minutes away from my, from my house. Um, and so a BLK would be a lot of fun. Um, I have some friends that have some bigger scanners, but I think that finding a way to scan those, scan that data um, and put that together. And when I saw your, I think it, this has been brought up a little bit in Discord. I think it could be a really fun project for some of our, we've been kind of looking for what to scan for people to work on. And maybe we can take parts of this and scan it and have people kind of use it as a test case or a, a learning opportunity. And if that's something you're interested in, uh, pick me, um, contact me in Discord. Excellent. Courtney, you had a thought? I was just looking for a place online and I did find uh, this place called uh, Aeronautica 3D. Excuse me, 3D. And uh, they do rent uh, the, the, um, um, like a BLK360s and Matterport Pro 3D. So look them up. They're in the San Francisco area. So they uh, have rentals and may have some trained personnel that can even run it for you. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is here. What, oh, when Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel did their show swap stunt last year? How was that handled? I've heard the switch mentioned. It wouldn't be surprising. Alex has talked a good little bit about the switch. It's a centralized uh, hub where a lot of the media uh, lines come in and go out of. Uh, Alex, can Sorry, you give some I, more I, details? I was in I was in uh, host mode, not panel mode. Um, so the um, uh, yeah, the only part that I think that was really hard. I mean, they just flew to each other's set. The only part that was hard was to talk back and forth to each other live. And my guess is they would use the switch for that. The switch is a is basically a private fiber network. Um, that connects almost every network to each other. Almost every TV network, um, arenas, stadiums, all those things are all connected over the switch. Um, the latency from LA to New York would be nominally about 42 milliseconds. Um, so, you know, that, that's the speed of the fiber. Um, that's so, so it's a little, um, little more than a frame. Uh, there's a little bit more when it comes to encoding and decoding the frames. And so you end up with about a, a round trip of about... 100 milliseconds a leg uh, at most, um, sometimes as low as 75. So it'd be very comfortable for them to talk back and forth with each other. So that's my guess. My guess is that's what, that's what happened there. Next question. From Tom Ferguson in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, right here on our panel today. Alex, it was one year ago today that Office Hours was promoted to version 2.0. Please give us a report card update on the continuing progress to the next stage. Take it away. Uh, we've come a long way <laughs> since 2.0. So, uh, you know, just the team has done an immense work. We're going to do a whole, uh, you know, second hour in the next couple of weeks to talk about like where we are right now and where we're going with 2.5. And, you know, a big thing that, you know, that that's happened here is a lot of things have been, you know, a lot of things are a lot more automatic. Um, a lot of the pieces are running a lot smoother. We're now, uh, this morning, as of yesterday, and we 
verified it this morning. Um, we're getting uh, 5.1 in the test streams, which you, you don't, a lot of you um, probably haven't seen yet, but we'll start putting them into a more more opened area. But 5.1 in the test streams with HDR, and so we're, we're pretty close to that process. Um, a lot of the, um, uh, you know, a lot of the, we're, we're work, there's been just a lot of work on the infrastructure to, and we're pushing the outer envelope. We're pushing against things that are crashing. <laughs> and it's because no one's ever been there before. <laughs> so, so like when we ask, when we tell a manufacturer, like it's, it's crashing, we have to send our logs and send what we're doing and figure, show them how we're putting it together because there just isn't any, um, you know, nobody's out in the area that we're in. And so, so I think that we're help, helping to pave a way for something new. Um, and we're, you know, getting a lot of bruises on the way, but the team has done just an incredible uh, amount of work and, and done, you know, just really good, um, you know, updates to that infrastructure that really are going to set us up for the next, uh, the next six months, but we'll talk about it more uh, in the next couple of weeks. Let's go to the next question. From Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, any thoughts on the new studio 6k pro versus a pocket 6k pro? So many similarities on the sensor, et cetera. What differences are intriguing to you and why? Alex? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that the, I mean, the big thing is, is are you using it in a studio or are you using it around town? <laughs> so that's that's the real choice. There's a lot of things, there's a lot of feature sets that are built into the studio, you know, like comms and and um, headphones and, you know, for, for comms uh, and the way it's built and how it's set up. If you're using it in, an, in a studio environment, it's, it's going to be a great solution for that. Uh, if you're trying to go out and if you want to take it out and shoot something in the field, it's probably not a good solution for that. And so it's got all the pieces that you need for a small studio to, to, to shoot something. So I think that you're kind of in this zone of you have a small studio and you start getting those and those education, corporate, um, house of worship, you know, those, um, those types of things, smaller studios, that the new studio is going to be a great solution. Um, the next step up, and, and again, also as a remote con cont contribution with the, you know, being able to do this over the internet, <laughs> connecting it to a phone, which is kind of, kind of amazing. Um, so there's a lot of things that it does for live production. Uh, if you're out there using a cinema and you want to shoot something that you're going to use for VOD, I'd probably go back to the, to the regular 6K, the cinema 6K. That's what it's built for. Next question. From Chris Fenwick in Emeryville, California. Alex, do you think that Blackmagic Design has avoided autofocus development because Sony is so far out ahead and they figure they can't compete? And uh, did you order that Sony camera yet? And Chris weighs his own hand on this, but let's go to uh, Alex I'll first. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so um, I think that autofocus is hard. <laughs> I think it costs a lot of money and it's really hard to do. And, you know, someday they may do autofocus. But when you look at the quality of 490 tracking points or something in a Sony camera, it's, you know, it, it will take a long time. Nobody else does it as well as Sony. I mean, so the, you know, the, the next closest is probably Panasonic and then Canon. Um, and so, and, and, you know, I think that it's, that's a huge lift. There's just certain things about cameras that are really hard and autofocus is one of them. So I think that it's going to take them some time to do that. And they built it for a specific thing and people have built around that. Uh, I haven't bought, I haven't bought the Sony camera yet. I'm, gonna wait for NAB. like we're close enough we're, we're almost within a, you know six weeks i was like i will feel really <laughs> bummed if i buy if i buy an fx30 or uh you know whatever i end up with um to 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 get if i buy it now i think i'll be bummed um i you know sony does usually use uh, nab as a launch pad so i'm gonna wait to see what happens there 
also black magic is only this is still six weeks out they announced some things it doesn't mean that's all they're going to announce and so so i think it would make sense to wait i mean we're now in that zone of unless you really need it you should probably not buy anything in audio and video uh, for the next six weeks because we just don't know what's going to happen next chris did you want to respond no uh, yeah i was i was curious alex uh by any chance have you changed your camera since yesterday? I have, and very quickly, and so it's not set up correctly right now. So, I so I, I saw I, something different. I got all ready. Here's the worst part: I got up early, was going through the questions. I was, we were doing HDR and five dot one tests, and everything was working. And I, I had my tea. I got everything set up, and I looked up because I had to send the Sony camera back yesterday. I looked up, and there was no camera. <laughs> That's why I was late today. Like I was like, I was like, there's no camera there. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to quickly, like I just, you know, it's just one of those things, like do 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 do. Oops, you know. And so, uh, so what are you, know, you? So what are you? What are you on today then? I'm on the black magic right now. I just the problem is it's not it's not focused in the right place, and it wasn't. It's not right. Yeah. It, it just it, it'll be right tomorrow. But I right, noticed the, I noticed the difference from yesterday. That that's yeah, Sony. But, but that the fourteen thousand dollar whatever that camera is looks really good. It does, and the problem is this focus thing is like I have to lean in and figure out where it is, um, and then also I you know just got it up really quickly and so it's kind of cockeyed and and it's too close and yeah there's a bunch of things that i have to fix because but i to be fair to, to black magic it's not all black magic it's mostly that it got set up in two minutes and i'm just trying to get to the show and, and then i'm i somehow i'm answering every question here so i'm not able uh, out of curiosity what's your f-stop at right now do you know uh i don't know it, you know it doesn't display it on the atem it's probably very right. wide so I, again, I just haven't had like literally came on the show and I haven't had time to sink it in because I, I keep. I'm, on I'm not trying to make you look bad. I'm just curious. I know, I'm just, I know. I just but I just want, want you to be fair. Like magic, we care. Like, we care about a horribly set up. Like it was set up in three minutes, and I just was like, oh, I got to get into the show, and so yeah. That's my nightmare. You look up, ready to go live. <laughs> something's completely wrong. Yeah. You can't instantly fix it. Yeah, and uh, it'll, it'll get it'll get better by the end of the show. It'll actually be probably better. So anyway. Mitchell, you had a thought. And welcome to this uh, segment of Let's Pick on Alex's Camera. Yeah. Um, to your point about getting and buying stuff at uh, timing around NAB, I find that NAB is a good uh, wash point for a lot of stuff. And one thing is getting B stock, stuff that they've used at the show. A lot of times you can get them at discounts, but that FR7 is really popular, so there may not be any B stock. You can get the funny thing about NAB, if you're ever looking for a, um, a motorized, um, you know, one of those automatic massage chairs. They usually, there's a company out of Santa Rosa that always has them in, I think, like the North Hall or South Hall. They have this huge thing and you just sit down and get get a massage and then they sell them to you for like a third of the price. I've never bought one, but I always think about it. I also, because I always, I'm always tired at some point and sit down in that little, that little cove of, of, uh, so if Mitchell, if you're looking for an inexpensive uh, massage chair, they have them. I could use that was it. my strategy at NAB for many years for my grip gear. I would uh, hover around Manfrotto or uh, Avenger, one of the other companies, on the last day on Wednesday and just say, do you really want to ship that back? <laughs> I got some cash in my pocket. And if you get to exactly the right person who has the authority to say yes, you can walk out with a shiny new sand for 50% of its retail. Been there, <laughs> done it. It works. It, it does. really does. Yeah, shipping is expensive for them. Anyway, let's go on to the next question. From John Foltzen, Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania. Good morning, all. What are the impressions of the new Blackmagic Studio Camera Pro, and how much of a difference will it make? Let's start with John Preto here. I love that the camera's got Ethernet built into it, and if you've got an operator, it's great, but no no autofocus. So I'm I'm getting ready to upgrade my, uh, my web camera, and I'm 
I'm looking at that camera versus the Sony. I just love the autofocus on the Sony. So we'll see. Courtney, you want to help us out? Yeah, it doesn't do autofocus, but the new uh, Micro Four Thirds and EF lens mounts allow you to use a lot of uh, you know still lenses and EF lenses and MFT lenses, and uh, they have the electrical connection to do remote focus and remote zoom. So you can actually control the focus and zoom over the Ethernet from the switcher itself. So that's going to be pretty handy. George, all I kept thinking is why can this be a RoboCam? But um. I think it's a, a decent update. Um, again, I'm just looking at, at everything he's doing in, in the connectivity space and, and wondering what, there, there's no, it needs to be a clear path of how this how these cameras and the whole ecosystem is gonna be used. I mean, we kind of don't know that right now. So I think it's got the sensors that, that we use here in office hours, but um, beyond that, it's just another upgrade. But, you know, I'm really looking to see what NAB is gonna bring. I'm kind of like hopeful. There you go, Alex. Yeah, I have a sneaky suspicion that the reason that we're doing seeing a lot of 1080p is because we're going to see a lot more IP and the the, the 4K is harder. <laughs> so so anyway, so I think that um, that that we're so I, I think that that might be part of the case. I do think that if we thought NDI was coming to Blackmagic, we can give that up now. Um, you know, they're they've got their own codecs of what how they want to go back and forth between stuff, and that codec evidently works over LAN, WAN, you know, all these other things. And so I think that we they they're kind of laying out, you know, how they're gonna how they're gonna do that. Chris Fanwick. But isn't it possible that this whole phone connection thing is kind of a gateway drug to other IP based connectivity things like NDI or what's I the think it's I think it's something like I, I think you're hundred percent right. Whatever. It's going to be a like NDI, just not going to be NDI. <laughs> like, well, you know, no, like... <laughs> I, no, I understand. I think you misunderstood what I was saying. Because, so Grant Grant is about you know cables and connectivity and switchers and routers and bears. Oh my, okay. So, but now he's added the phone connection, or and then there was the the stream bridge. Okay, and so. It's sort of the gateway drug into other types of IP connections. You, do, do you think NDI is just absolutely never, we're, we're never going to see NDI in a Blackmagic switcher? I, I, I wouldn't say hell would have to freeze over, but it would have to get really cold. Like it would, you know, like, <laughs> like it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have to be like pure ice, but it would be chilly and rainy uh, in hell before, before yeah. NDI got Heavy used to Blackmagic. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of water under that bridge. And so I think that I think that the um, but I think that in general, uh, that it looks like Blackmagic is building their own their own way of doing this, you know, in for the most part, Blackmagic doesn't really with the way that their clientele works. They don't really need to interact with other people that much. <laughs> like you know, they have to, they they do that a little bit, but as you get into that ecosystem, and again, there's key problems with that ecosystem, like what we're dealing with with autofocus and so on and so forth, but but a lot of us will stick with a lot of those things because the rest of the ecosystem works so well, and so I think that that's they that ecosystem is real lock in, um, and I think that they don't. I think it's easier for them to innovate between all of their equipment by not dealing with an external. Uh, you know, dealing with something that's external, the standardization means you can interact with a lot of things. And if you think that that's what you want to do, um, then you do that. But when you don't do that, like Apple doesn't do that for a lot of things like messages, it allows you to innovate a lot faster. You can fix things faster. You can do things faster. You can make things work, um, you know, and so you can move quicker when you're not trying to figure out, if, especially if somebody else owns that 
pipeline, you're not going to be able to, you, you know that you need to add this kind of data to it to make your cameras work and you can't do that because it's not your, it's not your format. So I think that, I think that there's a lot of advantages to Blackmagic, both in this area of lock-in as well as in the area of innovation that they're going to probably want to hang on to their own, their own connectivity between their own equipment. I think that's going to, that's, that's my guess. George, another thought? Alex, um, so I know he keeps showing the phone as a connectivity point. So I'm wondering if something can be used like a pep link or so forth to put in between as a con- connectivity point. So yeah. it will be good to see what, if we could put a pep link yeah. to make sure we have a higher bandwidth. You know, based in part on the thing that we did a week ago today, uh, last Friday when we were out at the tennis thing with Jeff Keithley and he had Sky walking around with a handheld uh, iPhone, the quality of that picture really did surprise me. I mean, it was really nice and it seemed pretty stable over the course of his moving around there. Is that part of that, this new reality, part of why Blackmagic is thinking about this? I mean, I think that that a lot of people... Uh, have talked about 5G working. When 5G works, it's great. It just doesn't work in very many places. So that's the, I mean, that's the real challenge. And so I think that uh, where 5G is working, this could be, this could work out really, really well. It just depends on where you're at, you know, and there are some places like the irony of it is in some arenas and stadiums, the 5G works really well because they built tons and tons of transponders into those locations. So coverage there actually could work really well, you know, to, to do that in a way that 4G doesn't. You know, 4G and LTE tend not to. 5G tends to lean more towards being like Wi-Fi, but without the downsides of Wi-Fi. You know, so so it'll be it'll be really interesting to see how it how it pans out. Chris Fenrick, real quick. Um, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong. When we were watching Sky's feed from the tennis match, wasn't he just dialing in on his own phone into Zoom, and he was just another window in the Zoom? I don't think he was even going through. Keith yeah, exactly. Switcher. And that's, uh, but that isn't that the equivalent of the new Black Magic camera with a phone just dialing in essentially as a feed uh, into a show? Uh, kind of, except that the latency will be higher and the, 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 the latency and the quality will probably be higher from the camera going into the switcher than it is to Zoom because it's not using, it, I don't think it's using WebRTC. So interesting. Courtney Gooden? Yeah, and I think the Ethernet connection, not not the USB three to the phone connection. The Ethernet connection is ten gig Ethernet connection that'll allow uh, speed and plus communications, bidirectional communications, return video and power, all over a uh, Cat six A. Uh, so you just have to plug one cable in and run that back to your switcher to a managed switch, and you have video communications and tally and you know all that over a single cat 6 cable and power so easy yeah they cable. mentioned that in the, the yeah that the, there was more than just the signal going out let's go to the next question from tom ferguson in phoenix arizona was the black magic design announcement all we should expect or will there be at least one more thing in nab george kennedy so i already asked about a press conference if there's no press conference at NAB, Blackmagic will more than likely drop a few more things leading up to NAB. That's all I'm going to say about that. But one of the attractions of going to NAB is going to a Blackmagic press conference. Yeah, I was going to say, you've been there for years. We used to see each other at it. Um, do you Have you gotten notification that they're doing that in the morning of the first day? Uh, would it be Sunday morning now? I guess it would be Sunday morning now. I don't think they're going to have a press conference. Okay, so they're not yeah, so looking at that as one of their primary information. We're probably going to see a few more things. I mean, they, they normally have a huge booth, so... Gonna, well, I, 
NAB is going to be interesting this year. Absolutely. Go ahead. Uh, I know Alex wants to get in on this. Alex? Oh, no. I was, was going to say is you're going to have to find your bagel somewhere else. Like that morning. <laughs> Tom Fergus said that. <laughs> Well, my wallet's been hibernating, and it now needs to know if it sees its shadow. So anything <laughs> would be interesting. <laughs> the groundhog yeah. conundrum. You know, I think it'll be interesting to see if if they if they do do some more announcements between now and NAB. It if they do, it makes way more sense. And what we're seeing is this move away from the live live to video live. Um, I think that. I think Black Magic could probably go a little faster in those, you know, they're they're doing it as live as, you know, inside of their studio, but that's a much better environment for Black Magic for Grant. I mean, I've I've been to many of those press events and he does an amazing job. He's one of the few CEOs that can do what we saw yesterday. Um and so so he's he does an amazing job at demoing those and he does a good job. But at NAB, you just load it in. You just got everything working. It's the first day. You're trying to get everything, you know, sorted out. And it, you don't have the level of control that you have if you do this at, you know, in your home office in Melbourne. And so, so I think that you, where you can rehearse it, rehearse it, everything's just the way it is, and then you just walk in and do it. And so I think that when you think about the larger audience, um, I think it makes way more sense. And we saw Apple release two products with a video, you know, um, you know, two two different videos or in three products. I think you're going to see more and more of companies starting to stopping doing the live live thing because. It's just not as good as the video version, <laughs> so it's it, you're not actually hit having the impact that you you that we used to have, and we used to do it that way because we didn't have video, and so now we have video. There's not really as much a reason to do it. So I think that it's going to be really interesting. I think that you're going to see less companies over the next couple of years doing the live keynotes and pushing more towards video. Yeah, the thing that surprised me about yesterday was that um, normally they would have three or four or five products in the big grant keynote. This was really. Uh, centered around the one switcher four plus five? the camera. Yeah. It's usually ninety. Like like I remember I remember one day there was there was one NAB on a Monday morning where or Tuesday morning or whatever it was like ninety products because like, they, they they did they talked about everything like here's a mini converter and here's a this and here's a that they don't even announce those, much of that anymore or they go oh here it is but it makes way more sense to not have a three hour session having you know, an hour here and a half an hour there, it gives every product a place to live on that space, in that space. Um, and so I think that, and, and and they're getting better at telling us it's going to be about switchers and cameras. So we know what we're walking ourselves into. So, but I think that, I think that they're doing a better, I, I think that more video announcements make way more sense. Um, and then you let people like us do watch parties, <laughs> talk about go. it during the, during the thing. So Nigel wanted to get into this. Nigel? Yeah, I wouldn't do it press review it at NAB or CES. I've done those and they're just complete nightmares. And you, you get yourself completely backed into something that's really hard to pull out of when the thing doesn't work. And all of us have been places where we're about to announce something and then suddenly we go, yeah, not so much. And so th that that's hard. I would just consider one other thing. I checked showstoppers. There's no showstoppers this year at NAB. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, and I don't know whether that was NAB hated showstoppers. Like they, you know, that was something that I don't know if something got pressed or pulled there because they it drove them crazy that companies could basically sideswipe the whole thing because the press would all just go to those things. And so I don't know if there's um, I don't know if Pepcom is doing anything. That's the other big one at any there was the big one at NAB where showstoppers and Pepcom. Um, but it, I know that it, it's it's interesting. I think a lot of the companies that we're not big enough to go to NAB to the floor, but we're big enough to go to showstoppers aren't going anymore. Like they just decided there's not ROI. I think that's part, part, part of the problem. 
Let's go to the next question. From Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. Alex, when you said you'd really like an M.2 slot in a Blackmagic design switcher, was that a little foreshadowing? Alex? It wasn't. It wasn't. And I didn't get what I asked for. So so if you think I was foreshadowing, I didn't get what I wanted, which was playback. I don't care about the record. Like, I mean, sure, the record's fine. In fact, I, I find that to be more cumbersome to do it in the switcher. Like, I don't want to do, I don't want to connect the switcher to an FTP or pull things off or have it shown as a drive. I want an external drive for the, you know, for the, um, for the switcher. I want an external drive that I can just pull off and walk away with. I don't want to connect the switcher or pull things off of it or anything else like that. So it, it is what I asked for. And I'm only hoping that somehow they do a firmware update that lets us have what we want, which is we just want to plug a, either have a drive built into the switcher or plug a drive into the outside and be able to treat it like a hyperdeck. <laughs> like, you know, it just doesn't like it. it, it is uh, we're, we're almost there um, and we don't, you know, again, we have a media pool, but the media pool didn't get any bigger. So I didn't get I, I did not get what I was asking for. Uh, Mitchell. Yeah, if if you're using the M.2, the, I think it's a two terabyte uh, card that they put in there. If you didn't have that and you were using an external drive, what size would you use, Alex? Would it be two or more? I mean, usually, usually when I'm, if I've only recorded a couple of times off the ISO, I have hyperdecks. I have lots of them. Um, then we usually record to that. And so if I'm recording the stuff there, I typically put a one terabyte drive on it because I'm just not, you know, it's not in the format that it captures in. If I'm capturing an hour or half an hour or whatever, it's, it's plenty of drive space, you know, so it's not, you know, so I think that, um, again, I think, I think it's cool and I think that people will use it. it but what I really wanted was to be able to, play video out you know to back into it and it seems like you know that's i mean that obviously eats into a business model that they already have courtney yeah they may have trouble doing synchronized playback for alpha channel and and graphics out of that uh, m2 slot maybe that's why they couldn't do it yet uh not that it can't be done uh what but i think they're afraid of eating into their hyperdeck uh, market because that's it would kind of negate the purchase of a hyperdeck. But maybe they'll sell it, it as a plug-in that costs one and a half times the cost of a hyperdeck, and I, so you can have it. Yeah, I, I don't know if it would really um, cut into their market for hyperdecks because when we play out hyperdecks, we're playing them out to lots of different locations. They have to go out to this, that, and the other thing. They're not. I mean, it it, it definitely cuts into some, but there's a it lot has of places. two aux outputs with switchers on each, so you could still do that. You know, yeah, out yeah of the I think that itself. There's a lot of places where I'd still rather have a hyperdeck, you know, and we're going to record most of what we do with hyperdecks is not play out, it's record. And we want to record ProRes or, or, you know, at least Pro, you know, ProRes LT or ProRes HQ or whatever. That's not what this would do, I think, you know, and so I think that I don't think it would necessarily replace that. I think that you're probably right, or whoever was said that it was. It could be the alpha channel, um, you know, issue of playing out two things or just that it's not, you know, it's designed to have a video pipeline. And how do you get from the memory to the video pipeline would be its own problem. But they know how to do that. They build cards that do that. So, you know, it would just be, I mean, it would be really exciting to be able to load load a bunch of sh stuff for a show, you know, into into the switcher and not have to think about it anymore. Um, I, it, you know, it appears that they're just not quite there yet. Chris Fenwick, you had a thought? I, I love the line you said, Alex. If they would just build what we want. Um, <laughs> just, Grant, what are you doing? Build what I want. Uh, exactly. To be clear, I mean, it does have uh, USB ports on it, and you can record to USB flash. Yeah, so yeah, it can do it. I'm just saying I don't care about the internal re recording. I want internal playback. I know. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry for you. That's all I want. I think a lot of people would want that. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I think I'm not the only person in the world that wants that. We're not going to be 100% happy. Oh, well. <laughs> Let's go to the next question. Alexander Knight from Vancouver, BC, Canada. Did anyone see the Discord announcement that you can stream 4K using the AV1 codec and the NVIDIA 40 series GPUs? They claim at only 8 megabits per second. Sounds efficient. Is this something we can utilize? Excellent question for Keely Dunn. Keely. It'd be a much more excellent question if I had more advanced knowledge of this, but literally the the alert splashed up when I reopened Discord this morning. And ordinarily, th this is how Discord does their updates, is they update the software, but you don't get it unless you actually shut Discord down, which is something that I don't do ever. So there it was on February 21st. I think the most exciting part of this, of course, is the announcement that they are looking at employing this in other uh, hardware graphics cards, because for a lot of us, that is not a graphics card that we are using. So I, I think what's really interesting is how Discord can really push the envelope on uh, video processing and audio and really get that out. And that's part of their freemium model by making that available to Nitro subscribers. So I'm a big fan of this and I love seeing the innovation. I just wish that they would I just th wish they would figure out how to promote this a lot better so that more people know about it. Alex? Yeah, I, so far, I, I have found their AV utilization to be quirky. Like, you know, so that's the, the you know, like it's, it's just kind of like it's, it's like streaming and audio and video done by people who don't do streaming audio and video. That's what it feels like is that they have, oh, yeah, yeah we can do this. But it's like, it's just like a, it's all like twisted like 90 degrees. And so... When I see it, I'm like, oh, that'd be cool. But I, you know, so far, like we were like, oh, we're going to do a whole bunch of stuff in Discord inside of another server that I was in. Oh, but we can only do it. We can only have the interaction with 25 or we can only have this. Like there's like these weird like limitations that we, you know, aren't used to anymore that that we kept on running into enough sharp edges that we were like, yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, and just we went back to Zoom. So, so I think that that's the, I think I, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, and I, uh, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, what kind of, what kind of quality they get out of it. It's just been, it hasn't been a, it hasn't been a clean transition to the, I, I, they know that that's an important market for them. I just, I haven't seen, um, a lot of compelling like it, that it, you know, that it works as well as it could. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's all I would say. Mitchell. You think Apple would ever uh, support NVIDIA cards again? Cause no. they don't now. No chance. They build their own GPUs. <clears throat> So yeah. they're not gonna they're not gonna do that because you know the problem is is that the OS depends on the GPU. That's why Apple wants control of it and Nvidia wants control of it because it's their card. Um, and so they have both have valid reasons for wanting to control the the code base, and they're never going to agree on on that because they both need it and they and they can't both have it. So so the chances of that happening now that especially Apple's building it all into their own silicon, chances of them supporting Nvidia is almost zero. Let's go to the next question. Nick Bat in the United Kingdom asking, is Nam in the diary for office hours? If not, why not? Courtney. Well, probably because it's the three days before NAB. You know, it's the 15th. I mean, it's the 13th through the 15th, and NAB is the 15th through the 19th. So it'd be a tough, tough uh, job to cover both. I don't know what Alex has planned. Maybe. Didn't we do Cinegear and Nam kind of the same way, just right at one after the other last well, year? Well, were two weekends apart, not one day apart, and it wasn't uh, part of NAB. I and mean, we have a lot of people going to NAB. Like right now, I think our team 
for NAB. And you can still sign up for this uh, for the next couple of days, but I think the team's like 20 people, you know, including the folks that are commentating and some of the people that are going to be on the ground and everything else. And so we have a lot of energy kind of going towards NAB. And so trying to do that and then have NAM right before it is really difficult for us. And I think it's going to be difficult for a lot of people. I think just as Courtney said, I have no idea what went through somebody's head to put NAM right in front of NAB. Like it's two very, very similar markets that they just stacked. And I get that they probably couldn't get the days they wanted and everything else, but there had to be some other day that they could have put it on. Almost any other weekend for NAM would have been better than the weekend that they chose. So, so I think that because if you think about all of the vendors, they have a, a lot of these vendors, especially smaller ones, have a booth. They don't have two booths. So now they don't have, you know, I don't know. I, I'd be really curious to see what they do because it's making them choose between NAM and NAB. And so that you have to decide, okay, is this is my big vertical. I'm going to go to NAM, but not NAB, or I'm going to go to NAB and not NAM. So it's, I think it damages both sides of that for them to do what they did there. So I, I, I don't understand it. But anyway, we may go and do a very light coverage. But I will admit the reason that we're going to go is because there's some systems that I want to test for NAB. So we may go to NAB, a couple of us go down and do some kind of live, you know, thing, probably in after hours, um, and maybe to a YouTube thing, but not part of office hours. But the reason we'll do it is because I got I want to, I want to hammer on some systems before we get to NAB. Um, so we also may, depending on how quickly we get things may go to GDC a little bit, to, you know, for an hour or two, just to see, again, I'm, we're requesting some hardware and if we get the hardware to borrow we'll do a couple things throughout march to try to get ready for these things and then we'll try to but the nam will be kind of a dress rehearsal it'll probably be a pretty good one <laughs> it'll be an hdr and 5.1 <laughs> so so the uh so if we, if we go to nam it'll be a very it'll be a different kind of stream than you've ever seen and we'll just do it there to see if it makes sure it works and then we'll use it more in nab shakeout time next yep. question from Harshid Trivedi in Daytona Beach, Florida, and here in our panel, Nigel, what type of over-the-ear headphones do you prefer for music listening or shows that may provide you with fun listening like an in-home system? Nigel, take it away. So I can only tell personally that if I'm wireless, I am using the AirPod Maxes. Um, if I'm wired because I'm into my mixer, I have a set of Technics which have a cable on them. I can't promise you that they're the best the best I actually have ever heard, I think, were fifteen or twenty thousand uh, dollars headphones, but they came with their own preamps and amps and stuff. But I find the the Apple ones comfortable to wear. And thank you for the question because it reminded me I have to charge mine before my flight to the UK tonight. There you go. Next question. Next question in from Talalik Lopez Waterman in Maryland. When configuring a Yamaha Rio thirty two twenty four D two, how do you get the IP settings to take? I make the change, and the resolve device address does not change. Thoughts? Uh, there's a note that the, the, those devices don't change until the factory initialization is done. So if you haven't done that, put it in there. Uh, hopefully that could help. If not, come back. We'll try farther. Next question. John Swan, Houston, Texas, asking, what's the best combination of equipment to effectively show a TV screen on camera? The backlight from TVs messes with the camera and lighting the instructor creates a glare on the TV as well. We're needing to demonstrate a Zoom Room touchscreen device. Courtney, start. Well, uh, start by turning the backlight all the way up if you have a backlight control on the television screen because when you start to dim down the backlight, it chops the signal of if it has the old, uh, old school uh, vacuum fluorescent backlights or even the new LED backlights, they use pulse width uh, 
command to, I mean, pulse width modulation to control the level of the backlight. So turn it all the way up. That means it won't be chopped, so you'll have more of a chance of getting less flicker on it. And then you'll have to adjust your exposure on the camera and your lighting to that. Make sure the camera and uh, your lights are set to the same color temperature as the backlight of the monitor, because if you try and color uh, adjust the color temperature of the monitor, it's going to get... Uh, you're going to lose a lot of the sweet spot. You're going to have to be right on axis to get the colors right. Any movement off axis, the color is going to shift on you. Um, let's say get a, get a camera with a variable shutter and have it open as much as you can and still get the uh, uh, exposure correctly. So you want to have a lens that you can stop down or put an ND filter in if you need because you're going to be opening up the shutter to 360 degrees or you know more than 180 degrees to eliminate the flicker and adjust the shutter angle to eliminate any flicker at the exposure that you get. Um, that's my suggestion. Tilt the monitor down so you don't have reflections of the lights if you're lighting from overhead. Um, and maybe find a monitor. If you, do have, if you do have the capability, don't get a monitor that has a glossy front on it. Make sure it has a matte finish on it and non-reflective coating on the front. Let's go to the next question. From Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia, asking, has any of the panelists done that ATEM switcher update? I'm not sure which one you're talking about. Let's see if Tom or Nigel can help us. Tom? Uh, version 9. No new features, but works just fine. Yeah. Uh, Nigel, is that your experience? Yeah, ditto. I, I moved to 9 and 1 before I put it on my main machine. It worked fine. It's now on my main machine. It's clean. Uh, but I don't know it really attacks, uh, attaches uh, anything interesting to the uh, A10 that I have. And we let's go to the next question. We're going to have to do this pretty quickly because we're getting close to the top of the hour. But that's uh, a big question. Go ahead. Inquiring minds want to know, what was the first NLE system you used? Okay, let's see. I started, actually, I think, with Final Cut back in 1999 at NAB when it was first introduced. Before that, I had been just a AB Roll hardware editor. Uh, so, Chris Fenwick, where did you start? Early Premiere, like Premiere 1 or 2 or something like that. Yeah, back in the early days when Randy Ubilos had just written it. Uh, John Preto. When you bought a win-off capture card for the PC board, you got Pinnacle Studio with it, version 1 or 2. But I was also at the... The release when New Tech released the flyer at Caesars Palace, whatever year that was. Tom Ferguson. Uh, NLE, you had it so easy. We started out with linear editing and used these huge beasts. And, of course, we graduated up to a Datatron controller for all of that to actually take care of the 17 frames you had to push the button before the edit would actually happen. Very hard to get either of those in a briefcase. Mitch Hill. Media 100. There you go, Courtney Gooden. Yeah, I used the VR2000 uh, with Editec built in, which was the uh, Ampex 2-inch quad machine. Uh, George Kennedy. Early premiere, but I enjoyed Beta AB. Nice. And Alex. Uh, premiere. Premiere, premiere. okay. So a lot yeah. of people started with uh, Premiere after Randy wrote it for, what was it, Key Grip or something? It was 1991 or two. Yeah, boy, a long way back. Uh, the industry has come a long way. Uh, don't forget that uh, we are still, you're in the last bare 
uh, days of being able to volunteer for the NAB crew. So if you want to do that, definitely get into the back end. Tell us you're interested in doing that. We have a lot of people who are going to NAB. It should be a fascinating piece of coverage. And beyond NAB, just if you want to volunteer to help on some of the aspects of the show uh, here daily, remember you can go on to our Discord or you can go on to follow the email links that you get every day, and it's going to take you right to chances to become more involved with office hours. You'll find it an incredible community of inc- very nice and very technically competent people, and we always can use more skills. All right. That said, it's eight o'clock, and that means it is time for our special guest. I've been looking forward to this since I heard he was coming. Larry O'Connor from OWC, someone who was, I think, even he doesn't know how much he's touched many of the lives of the people on the panel. That organization, Otherworld Computing, has helped us with memory and hard drives and just helping us increase the capacity of our systems so that we can get the work done we need to do and uh, enhance our lives. So, Larry, it is fabulous to have you here. Welcome and, to Office Hours. And I'll give a little backdrop here before Larry, before we bring Larry sure. in here. So the um, the... Uh, a lot of us are heavy OWC users, <laughs> so, so we, we have a lot of a lot of OWC, as, as Bill intimated. Um, and Jason, uh, you know, w- was talking to us and just going, "Okay, they're working on this thing that you have to see, um, and we have to show, we have to br- bring this in." And so we, we're we're going to hand it off to Jason to to talk a little bit with Larry about about this about what this uh, what the new stuff is and how it works. So, Jason, I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it off to you. Okay, well, for the third time, it's my profound pleasure to introduce Larry O'Connor, um, who is the um, CEO of OWC. And um, yeah, we've got a few new products. Uh, Larry, I think we met maybe, what, five years ago, something like that. And and um, we spent a good three hours talking about these. So um, you've, got, you've built a lot of docs over the years. And, and the way that the design is kind of come together has you know has has started with stuff where you know most of the time you end up with you know big power bricks um on something and um i guess you're you're here today to to at least give us an overview of um you know some of the newer stuff and um and really what we're after here is um, how far can you push a Mac mini with, you know, with some of these new products. And I've got a really cool thing to show you a little bit later in the hour with a, with a 6K camera and, um, you know, what, what class compliance can, can really mean. So um, for those of you that don't know, Larry has been, Larry's been trying to get more out of computing since um, before he had a learner's permit, um, right? That was the origin. Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah, right. What was it? Fourteen? You were refilling ink cartridges or something? Is that that's the lore at least? Um, Actually, breaking ribbons. I don't think we had print cartridges back. Not yet. <laughs> Even better. So it, it's you know it's of course a long way to go from ribbons to uh, to docs, but you know give me give me a sense of at least how it. How you came about, you know, going, how do I explain this? How you came about, um, I don't so know, let, from let, where, let us, how did, how did you get started? How did o- OWC get started? Like, was this something out of your, you know, <laughs> out of your garage or did you, how did, where did you, how did you get to it? It didn't start in the garage, but pretty close. It started in a barn in the country <laughs> for all practical uh, purposes. 
And it was kind of out of necessity. I mean, number one, they had the drive to get more at that point from an, an Apple, an Apple two GS actually that I had. And not being able to drive, not not and just the inconvenience in general of having to tear a system down, bring it someplace, you know, be given a really high quote to do, but at that point was you know behind a you know black curtain kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And tearing that apart and saying, you know, there's there needs to be greater accessibility. We can do more with these systems. Let's make it I can make it easier. I mean, it was experimentation. Why do people have to go through all this headache and hassle to do a simple upgrade? And beyond that, do people understand and realize, and this is how easy an upgrade is that they can do it and the benefits of these upgrades. So it kind of drove and that is the waste not. I mean, I've always, you know, where, where we grew up, always waste not, want not, and kind of applied that into the, the computing space. Let's make this stuff go further. Let's make it more reliable. Let's build things that last and help things that are already working give people the opportunity to keep them working longer and better. And so you had Apple II GS. What, what year was this that you started this in the barn? Oh, that'd be 19, uh, 1987. Uh, oh. And 1988 was when I was remaking. And late 88 and 89, I got into memory upgrades. Just, again, out of you know personal necessity. And it was a time, and this was really a big catalyst. There had been an earthquake in Asia, which messed up a lot of the uh, photography machines and uh, that were used for production of DRAM. DRAM got very expensive. And something kind of happened, happened in the Apple market where... Everybody raised their prices. It was a commodity that because of what had happened. But after things stabilized and supply was you know, more normalized and costs had come back down in the Apple market, nobody dropped their prices. And right. there's a not to you know really belabor and go into the long story, but you know, when I was in school, there was we had a, a news depot that was down the street from maybe two blocks, three blocks from school. I'd go in after they had a few arcade you know, games and whatnot, and they had just about every publication uh you know, known to uh, you know mankind at that time, and Computer Shopper happened to be one of them. That big used to be that big giant, awesome. Uh, I don't know, just every month, I mean, it's just so much information in it, and was flipping through it and saw part numbers, the you know, components that looked very similar to what was inside my system. And looked at the cost. I mean, geez, this is four hundred dollars here. I think I can get these. I mean, never mind, you know, going wholesale, but I can put together a kit and support Apple people for a quarter of that with what I'm seeing here. Right. And did it for myself. I said, I can help people. And, you know, ultimately that, that was the door that opened. I mean, I, I guess you could say a little bit of greed in the Apple you know, space. I mean, they, they, people are still paying this. And back then, I mean, yeah, people certainly, it was more of a minority with computers. I got my Apple 2GS, by the way, because of I, I sold tickets or Apple tickets to win a cash prize. And that's how I paid for my, uh, my first Apple. <laughs> what did you, what did you, oh, you just said win a cash prize and 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 you just got a bunch you got a big raffle and um and that was enough to that's 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 imaginative that's imaginative um so uh so when and you've now really moved i mean we really had, think you, you of owc as someone that's, that's building a lot of connectivity building a lot of storage uh was there a shift in your business model at some point to get to that to make that change you know, it's always, I mean, it was, it's been driven by, you know, some, in some cases, my personal needs. And then as the company grew, you know, by what our, our team, you know, was looking at, you know, seeing deficiencies, seeing, you know, products that either lacked or didn't do everything we needed, things that were maybe too niche out of reach or just, you know, gaps that were in the, uh, you know, in the system, in, in the program, so to speak. You know, early 90s got into storage, you know, needed storage, wanted storage. Actually, we rolled out in 92. We had the first bus, but maybe it was 94. We had the very first bus-powered hard drives. I mean, these powered off the floppy port, but that was the first in the market. We didn't, I mean, it was you know, just direct to our customers, but that was something unique. 
you know, we moved in the processor upgrades. You know, first they had the clockers because Apple really uh, over uh, engineered in a lot of areas. So there's easy ways to clock and then actually brought out the very first Ziff upgrades to take, you know, those two G, I'm sorry, those uh, G3s, you know, to a higher level. And it was great because we could, you know, for $300, we offered a, a processor upgrade that made a, a at that point, a, a G3, Apple's first uh, you know, power PCs after the 601s, after those G stuff, the first, what, the Power Mac 6100, 7100 series when they went to the G3. Really, that's you know, right after Jobs came back and or right before Jobs came back when things were kind of in disarray. But long story short, you know, you could spend, you know, $500 more, maybe it was $800 more to get the fastest Apple. Or for $300, we took the slowest machine off the shelf and made it faster than Apple's fastest because of cash. I mean, it was, I guess, all about maximizing, uh, you know, what existing hardware could do. And we would take that further when OSX, after Jobs came back, OSX uh, went into beta test. And it was a great beta program. Everybody could run it. And when and this is just how we uh, think and operate, we had customers that had upgraded at that point. We had you know, we were moving the G4 processors. We had much faster G3s. People upgraded memory, hard drives, everything in these systems. And they ran OSX crate. And then when OSX went from beta to release, you know, Jobs said, I mean, I say Jobs, I mean, Apple. I mean, that was kind of Jobs gig. Okay, great. Thanks for beta testing. Everything's, you know, thank you for helping us get this OS, you know, ready for a release point. But now you got to buy a new computer if you want to use it. So we released Ex Post Facto for free, which was software that let you run OS X on previous hardware on non-supported Macs, and which we were able to keep yeah. going until uh, until Apple went to Intel with uh, starting up up to OS 10.4. And, I'm and, going way way back, but that's just kind of the uh, the yeah. flow. We, no, and FireWire, and I'll say the last tangent. Yeah, we got Firewire. in the FireWire storage you know, back in the 2001. Not because initially we had, you know, we were still doing, we were still doing SCSI drives and such, but the drives at that time, and you know, this was, it's a lot different today. It's honestly a lot harder to communicate today at this different specification. I mean, people don't care about specs, don't even look at that stuff anymore. And a lot of things are, are good enough, but you don't know what you're missing because they're good enough. But back in 2001. What, what are we missing? Like when, when we look at good enough for drives, what, what are we missing? You're missing sustained performance in a lot of cases. You're missing reliability. You're missing how to say they, they have great instant specs, but what they're really doing, I mean, if you walk away, you're missing out, out on potential performance, potential reliability, or even things along the lines of are they built the last? Is the, are they going to take a drop? Those yeah. sorts of matters. But in an SSD space, we see all these SSDs out there that promise these amazing, awesome speeds. And you really put them to the test. They do that for a few seconds, and then they can drop to almost nothing. We, we, we warn people a lot of times. We, I have a lot of the Samsung, because they fit with our cameras really well, the Blackmagic mm -hmm. cameras. We have these Samsung, the, the T5 drives. But the problem is, is that they'll, they'll do sustain for about 400 gigs out of a terabyte, and then they just drop to nothing. Like, it's just like, and we're done. And what causes that? Is that heat? Is that a heat issue for them? It depends upon the drive. Heat is, you know, heat throttling is uh, is one factor that brings drives down. And that's something, you know, if you look at an enclosure, you know, there's lots of very inexpensive enclosures out there. Actually, one of our guys, actually, his neighbor bought one of those really inexpensive enclosures and showed how it melted. I mean, the thing literally melted. And heat dissipation is really important because drives that, you know, run at high speed, certainly for a sustained period of time, they generate heat. It's just a by-factor of the, at this point, byproduct of, of what's happening to push that data through. You know, the enclosure is important because things will heat throttle or worse. You have some drives that are really not designed well. 
Southwest State Drive, and they get all the majors are pretty well on this. So they don't heat throttle. You, know, you run the risk, of course, of cooking the drive. Right. Well, Absolutely. and provisioning, of course, you know, how how over-provisioned is the storage? That's that's a big deal, too. Yeah, the cash, the, the drop-off in performance comes down to, you, know, you have a, you, at this point, you have three cash layers, potentially. You have, there's a RAM, there's memory, uh, a lot of the, all of our high-end SSDs have RAM, which not only gives us you know, some instant buffering, but it also helps manage the uh, the garbage collection and, and keeping the drive clean and fresh to receive that. It gives faster management. Then you have a, a PSLC layer, which is very, very high speed. And you know, how large that section is has a huge impact on you know when how much the drive can stand. And then it's the quality of the flash or the speed of the flash behind it. And that's where you go between QLC and TLC, or even how the drive you, is tuned. Can you explain QLC versus TLC? Sure. Quad layer uh, versus triple layer. And you know, if you go back a few years, there was just the MLC, which is really kind of a, a dual layer. And then we went to TLC. TLC initially was very slow compared to MLC. You know, the technology used, I mean, they pack more bits into the same space. You have to add more mm-hmm. layers. Adding more layers, you know, at least in the initial stages, has a big impact on performance. And then the technology evolves. You have different, I guess you could say, relays within the uh, the actual NAND. And ultimately, you bring things up. Today, though, if you see something that says QLC, it's going to be slow. And if it's fast initially, because you say, wow, this is QLC, and they claim all these great speeds, it's going to be fast for a little while, and it literally will drop to speeds that are slower than a hard drive. So it's 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 really about, I mean, when we put, we try to put specs up that we talk about, you know, what are, you know, what the sustained you know, performance is throughout what part of the drive, where we're going to drop it. I mean, you have to, the paper on the drive, you're going to drop. We don't drop to nothing, though. We don't produce things that drops. I mean, they're, I don't know what the T5 drops to. I should maybe, but. It's like 30 megs a second. Yeah. I mean, you got stuff that drops to almost nothing. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like very useful and then not useful at all, really fast. You know, so. So, yeah, so it's, it's, and it's only when you're doing maximum, 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 like pulling it out. If you just are writing to it at a reasonable speed, uh, it it does better. So, um, so I guess, and and I guess one of the things that we'll, we'll, what we're going to do is have you, um, I think Jason said there's some new stuff to show here. We're going to have you show a little bit of that. And then we've got a lot of questions starting to stack up. Jason, do you want to cue that up a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I, I can, I can take it from there. So, I mean, um, the, the mini stack STX has been out for a little while. Um, but one of the things that I, I think was different is that um, the hub protocol is built in now, right? So you've got, it's a little bit hard to see on that. But so, you know, you've got 90 watts coming in and you've got three Thunderbolts coming down, right? And actually, 90 watts going out. I'm sorry, 90 watts going out. And then you've got space in here. Um, I actually really put this through its paces, I've, I've had it for a couple of days. And what I found was um, I can get the fan to kind of turn on, like like if I really get like if I'm really pushing it. If I, um, for example, one of my tests was on this um, on this M2 Mini, I took the entire Logic Sound library and pushed it between um, between the Mini, the um, M2 SSD, and then a SATA drive that I put into um, into this box. That was the only time I ever heard the fan in the the whole time. Um, and what are, I, I guess one ahead. of the things we don't we don't see for for uh, we don't see four thunderbolts very often. What are the challenges with packing that into a uh, an, into an external device? You know, honestly, it's more qualification than anything else. The chipsets mm-hmm. today give us that capability. I mean, we can't. Right. 
Yeah, how many buses are those? Four separate buses or one bus that's kind of being supporting all all those uh, Thunderbirds? Yeah, if you got a single channel coming in, then you get four downstream. I'm sorry, three downstream ports from it with the the ghost right. with that chipset design. And then as to qualification, it's heat dissipation. You know, the one trade off that we do have in the mini stack is, and this is with today's chipset technology. There's just no other way around this with Thunderbolt four. You know, we only get a single lane of PCI to the to the hard drive and the SSD. But for audio and even for, you know, even up to probably about 4K, up to 4K video and a little bit beyond 4K video, the mini stack with a single lane and today's NVMe technology. And that's the other big thing. It sustains that performance throughout. You do have enough data performance for an amazing array of applications. You know, speeds and feats are something people go after all the time. Oh my God, this is, you know, five million megabytes a second. You know, you really need to look at your application, which all of you are very well aware of. And am I meeting my application spec and does this serve the purpose that it needs, which the mini stack was designed, you know, looking at needs and purposes, hard drive and SSD and giving people those extra ports. So the Thunderbolt or their, uh, of course, any anything that's USB and their full power. I mean, a lot of people have multiple. Now they have, there's more and more bus power devices out there. So that's a, a big plus for uh, for bus power. You also have the other benefit with anything that gives you more Thunderbolt ports, the shorter your Thunderbolt chains the better your performance across those Thunderbolt devices. So being able to, and just the, the convenience of being able to disconnect a single device and not have to unravel a whole chain that grabs something that might be in the middle. No, absolutely. And um, the and how would you compare the Thunderbolt 4 to the, you know, highest performance USB-C? Is there, is there a, a big, big difference? Yes. <laughs> just <that's... laughs> I threw you a softball. So, yeah, so, so, so can you tell us a little bit about, about working with both of those? Well, Thunderbolt, I say, I mean, in Thunderbolt 4, this is, this is kind of, there's a rabbit hole, you know, when we talk about Thunderbolt We're good at rabbit holes. General. Yeah. So I'm going to try not to go too deep into this, yeah. but Thunderbolt 4, you know, in terms of in the peripheral side is really more about giving people more ports and those ports are 40 gigabit. You know, they support video and, of course, audio. They support, you know, up to 2,800 megabytes of data performance, more or less, you know, right about in that range. There's, of course, USB, and you can daisy change. So you can add device. It's a PCI. I mean, effectively, you have external PCI with anything that's Thunderbolt. USB is USB, and in addition to processor overhead on USB, and it's gotten better. You know, it's really single-ended. You have a hub. I mean, it's you, you put a hub on something that's USB. I mean, it's a hub, not a dock. You know, your performance is even further diminished. And what kind of what kind of real speeds can we get um, when we're transferring data? You know, through Thunderbolt four. Well, it's called Thunderbolt forty gigabits, or it's called Thunderbolt three and Thunderbolt four. But through a Thunderbolt four port, you're going to hit on data rates. You know, regularly on the tw- realistically twenty five hundred to twenty hundred megs a second. That's great. That's great. Jason, you had other things you wanted to you wanted to Yeah, um I'm I'm going to try not to I'm going to try not to get too into this, but uh, it is clear to me that, you know, again, because a lot of the a lot of the prior docs were really well constructed but, you know, ended up needing something like this, you know, these mini stacks, these um, you know, the wall warts essentially um to to be powered. Um and then I opened this one and and I was looking for the wall wart, and there isn't one. This is it. Like it's just it plugs in just like a Mac Mini. Um, and I don't think there's a fan in here. So this clearly was the result of a ton of engineering. Um, and I would assume maybe GAN 
Is that how you're doing gallium nitride? Um, how? And, can, and, and I'm gonna we're gonna keep on pulling you back to because I know that you have so much in your head, Larry. That I'm gonna, we're gonna try to pull some of it out. Can you tell us how NGAN works and, and, and why uh, why it's important? Well, the bad news, I really can't tell you a whole lot about how it works. Okay. Other than the benefit of it is is a much smaller, more compact power supply. Okay. That with the right heat dissipation, you can pack a lot of wattage into a much smaller place. Yeah. So absolutely. that's the uh, that's the benefit. It's just a more efficient. It's more efficient for the same space. Is like, I suppose what I put out there without without going into great engineering detail. Other than we love it because now it means we can do a lot more without having to have a giant wall wart. No, absolutely, absolutely. And one other thing, I have actually, I was, um, I have one of these uh, one of these little raids which we like a lot. We got a couple ah, of these uh, floating express. around. Can you tell us what's the difference between um, NVMe and SATA? Can you describe like why you choose one or the other? NVMe is just simply it's going to be faster. It's it's processor direct. I, I mean, you lose the, some of that benefit when you go through USB, but effectively, it's it's a faster. It, it just it's there's less uh, interface between the computer and the uh, the and where the data is when using NVMe a device. You have SAT SSDs, and SAT is limited to today. SAT is limited, and probably forever at this point. There is no new SATA coming along. You're limited to six gigabits. So call it you know five six hundred megs a second. NVMe, the the sky is limit is based on the PCE level. So PCIe agents, everything that's NVMe today, you're you're able to push. I mean, you have bandwidth available that's in excess of three thousand megs, four thousand megs a second. Right. Absolutely. And we've got a couple questions lining up, so we're going to go to the panelists. i got a better answer to that. SATA, oh, yeah. you're limited to the bus. NVMe, you're limited uh, really to your interface and what the drive can do. Right. That's very good. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll go to the panelists for a little bit, and then I know there's some more things to show, but we're going to jump into it. we got a, a bunch of questions stacking up, and you can tell that for our viewers that Larry knows a lot about this. <laughs> so we're going to take advantage of that. Um, so uh, go ahead, Mitchell, and you have a question. Larry, uh, first of all, thanks for being here. I'm a big fan. Um, you got my attention way back when, when you were showing how you could take something that you had, a Mac computer, and make it live longer. And I had a 2010, still do, 2010 uh, cheese grater that went to your place to have a, uh, a CPU put in it, which I use to this day, by the way. What are your plans to do uh, to increase the life of an M2 or an M1 or Apple Silicon? On the uh, the Apple silicon, I mean, everything is going to, unfortunately, everything is external. There is pretty much nothing you can do inside the machine. But in terms of what we can continue to have externally, I mean, today it's kind of limited. But as new needs come along, and it's really exciting that Apple looks like they're going to be opening up uh, external GPUs again and, and bringing that support to Apple silicon. I think that's really, really important, especially for specialty apps and for audio. I mean, there's all sorts of applications there. But ultimately, because it's PCIe, We'll be able to continue to add things externally. I go and um, George. Morning, Larry. How are you? Morning, George. Hey, good to see you. Good. Um, so, what I, let let folks know. So, I wanted to say real quickly that, uh, but maybe three or four NABs back right uh, back. You know, I've known Larry and his team for a while. It was asked, you know, what can we do to help filmmaker filmmakers with the process of post production and shooting. So Larry has, OWC took a route to really embrace filmmakers. Larry, how has that been over the past few years and getting to where you are? It, it's a different company now as far as integrating more products directly to our industry and filmmakers. How has that process been? It's, it's 
Been good. I mean, if you go back to, again, we got in the firewire. I didn't actually finish that part of the story because we had people in film and audio. They were having problems with the firewire drives. And we were selling major brand drives, but they were flavor of the week. They changed chipsets. They changed drives. The performance wasn't consistent. And it's it's why we rolled out Oxford-based high-performance uh, firewire drives. And we didn't do it going after film. We did it we didn't. We did it honestly. Pretty, you know, I, I won't say ignorance, but kind of oblivious to what the application was. Other than they need performance. Our customers need performance. Our customers need. You know, we know the Oxford chipset is what delivers it, along with the right drive. So we, way back when, you know, we've embraced our customers' needs, and as we've embraced media and entertainment, you know, we've worked to be everything from you know that capture to output, which is what we uh, provide today. And it's what we do. I mean, we want everybody to have accessibility to our solutions. I mean, we're not trying to price things, you know, make something that, you know, 100 people can afford and, you know, and, and sell for some outrageous costs. You know, throughout our history, it's been about what great technology can we bring forth that meets the, you know, the needs of our customers, in this case, media and entertainment, that anybody can use, whether I'm a home photographer or a hobbyist. I mean, I'm doing drone videos. I'm doing my family's photos, whatever it might be up to major motion picture, which our line truly embraces today. And the feedback we, you all on the front lines, and especially in the, in the, in the it's high performance series, there's workflows that, you know, that you absolutely need the right solutions for. And the feedback that comes from all of you, I mean, that, that inspires and that drives, you know, how we, how we design and engineer and, and you know, where we put our focus and that benefits everybody. And we've got a couple of questions coming in from the, uh, from our viewers or our producers here. So let's go ahead and jump to the questions. And here's one from Vieira, Florida, from Andy Kokendorfer asking, which OWC hub do you recommend for an M2 Pro MacBook used for live streaming? You know, the beautiful, I mean, you're, I'm assuming you need USB inputs or maybe you need USB-C inputs. You need USB-C inputs or a Thunderbolt 4 dock or even our Thunderbolt 4 hub, which is technically a, a dock. You know, with the thing about our docks, all the way back to our first Thunderbolt 2 dock, all the ports we have provide full bandwidth. You know, they don't have, you know, they're not overloaded. They don't have constraints. You know, there's the bandwidth there to, to do what you need it to do with reliability. So really it's, it comes down to how many devices do you need to connect and what kind of ports do you need? And any of the uh, the Thunderbolt uh, solutions we provide are gonna meet those needs. In fact, the first stock that we put out, we didn't build it for live streaming. We didn't. It was not. A, we didn't go after that market. But because of you know the you know who typically there's a lot of reviewers that are doing these live streams. You know we learned early, and this is why I even talk about it today. You now the feedback was this is the first dock that we can actually plug our four cameras into, and they all work at the same time. I was like, huh. And I, we knew why is because of what we did with our USB hubbing inside the uh, solution. And it was for us, it was common sense. If you're going to put ports on, they've got to have performance. And that's also why on a Thunderbolt 4 dock, you know, that we offer, you don't see a million ports, especially with Thunderbolt 4. Again, you've only got that one PCIe lane available. If you need more ports than our Thunderbolt 4 dock offers, you go to our Thunderbolt 3 14 port dock because it, it, it has additional bandwidth that we're able to provide, you know, into the dock to support those additional ports. So you don't have you know, limitations if you do fully load up the dock. We want all of our docks to be able to operate fully loaded with all those ports occupied. And, you know, so it really comes down to, again, the, the ports and what you need. And I want to throw some out of just really quick, that rabbit hole about Thunderbolt 3, Thunderbolt 4. Thunderbolt 3 is equivalent, especially on a Mac, to Thunderbolt 4 in terms of performance on the ports. Thunderbolt 4 on a peripheral is really more about being able to add more Thunderbolt ports 
And then there's less bandwidth available to have peripheral capabilities within the Thunderbolt 4 product. Thunderbolt 3, you only have the one downstream port for Thunderbolt, but you have the full lane capability, the full capability of Thunderbolt 4, I'm sorry, Thunderbolt 3 or 4, the full 40 gigabit capability of Thunderbolt throughout the entire device, which is why you don't see Thunderbolt 4 RAID solutions and, and high-end Thunderbolt 4 stores. People ask us, when are your Thunderbolt 4? Actually, one person specifically, and he was like, oh my gosh. And I was like, I mean, and at first I was like, you know, thanks Intel, but we had customers come to us and say, that Flex 8's amazing when we introduced the, our Flex 8 product. I just wish it was Thunderbolt 4. It's like, you don't wish it was Thunderbolt 4 because what makes the Thunderbolt, the Flex 8 awesome is, you know, all the capability within it. If it was a Thunderbolt 4 solution, it'd literally be one-fourth the speed, you know, one-fourth for all those drives. So Thunderbolt 3 and Thunderbolt 4 in the peripheral space, you know, one is not better than the other. It's one is for a, a certain kind of solution and one is for the other solution. Thunderbolt 8120, or people are referring to as Thunderbolt 5, is going to change that immensely. I mean, I'm really excited about how, what how does it change it? Thunderbolt 5. In the Thunderbolt 5, when we move into Thunderbolt 8120, uh, the availability of being well, in a single solution, ports will be, it won't be a compromise. Do we have more Thunderbolt ports? You know, how do we route our PCI lanes? What we're going to be able to do within a device, the bandwidth is going to be up to 120 gigabits in one direction. I mean, so when you take off, it, it'll support much higher. You're going to have more capability for displays and you're going to have bandwidth for data that, that approaches, you know, 6,000 to 6,500 megabytes a second without compromise. That's how far away. How far away is Thunderbolt 5, do you think? Thunderbolt 5, we'll, we'll see the first Thunderbolt 5 systems, probably in the Windows and the Intel band in early 2024. You know, we're, we'll see, I can't really talk much about Apple in right. general, but 2024 uh, is when Thunderbolt 5 will start to roll. And Thunderbolt 5, we're, again, there's a lot of questions we still have in terms of backwards compatibility, but we're looking, at, you're certainly going to be able to run Thunderbolt 5 on, or Thunderbolt 8120 devices on probably every Mac from 2016 and later, just like Thunderbolt 4, the question is going to be is, uh, will be what kind of OS support is necessary for it. And there's still some, there's still some, uh, you know, some haze. And we, we still, we're still waiting for good information there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's go to the next question. Henry Ramos from Yonkers, New York, uh, asking, with companies moving towards unserviceable or unupgradable hardware, will this affect product lines like OWC? Do you support efforts or possible legislation against that trend? Well, first I answer the last part of that. Yeah, we're part of the the, the, the right to repair, uh, I'd say, consortium. I mean, we're a supporter and an involved, uh, I'd say, organization or company with that group. And in terms of our own solutions, you know, we always push to support. Our, we, you know, we, in fact, we have battery. We, we still do batteries for everything to make sure you can upgrade your battery without having to be tied to a service life on a product. But in general, all of our solutions are aimed at extending the life of, of existing uh, computers. And we have not for our own products. And now there's a push you look everywhere. I mean, this has already been happening. I mean, everybody does these, I should say everybody, but there's a lot of stuff out there that's, for lack of a better term, it's designed to fail. You now it comes, especially on uh, desktop powered drives, you know, the stuff you see in uh, Best Buy or worse on the shelf at you know, Walmart, a lot of stuff comes with a little tiny Walmart power adapter. And that stuff's not designed to last. I mean, I, I can't say it's they're intentionally setting up for failure, but by cutting costs and a, a power supply, an extra power supply, and what they do with the power supply on the bridge, you know, noisy power, just like bad, I mean, bad audio or a bad amplifier can you know, cook a speaker. 
bad power supplies, you know, over time do damage to the, uh, to what they're powering. And that's a, uh, we, we take real issue with that. And we've always built, even before it was a thing, we've always built things uh, to last. I mean, we don't want to uh, drive sales or being, we want, this is, I mean, we're a data storage company any more than, you know, than most. And focusing on data, you know, we want to make sure everything we put out there you know, has the best uh, reliability you know, for, well. Does that mean if we, we really like our product, we should go out and get a better power supply? Like, like just, just get a better power supply that, that produces the same voltage that, and enough amps to, to solve that? Is that, is In that a lot a, of cases, that would help. Having an overpowered, uh, having a bigger power adapter you know, for the, uh, with the same voltage output you know, actually helps. I mean, if you take some of those, uh, the problem with a lot of power supplies are included with these different drives. If you look at their, uh, their capability, their output, they have to use peak power to spin the drive up, especially talking about spinning devices. They need, you know, they're not operating within their normal range. I mean, they got to go into that peak, the handle spin ups and, and high level activity, which is really bad. It puts stress on the power supply is the point of failure, but putting stress on the power supply is probably not going to fail. But, you know, you look at an oscilloscope and what, what's happening with that power that's being put into the device when it's under, when it's in peak, it's pretty ugly. Right. And that's really bad for the device. Oh, absolutely. Um, next question. George E. Kennedy Jr. from Washington, D.C. here on our panel also. Larry, we discussed this before with all the tech OWC has in its arsenal. Will we see in network-attached storage any updates? You know, we have Jellyfish, which is really high-end. Uh, I mean, that's for video production. We also have Jupiter, which is still, like it's not as expensive. I mean, it's, it's, more, it's still more professional, small office, uh, I'd say so audio production. We are working on bringing that technology, and we have a couple of different paths that ultimately I think we're going to see fulfilled. So we have a NAS product for the mass. We just want to do it right and do it in a way that it's not necessarily just a me too. There are decent mass products out there. There's different ways to share storage. We have a lot of our customers, you know, and it's not a great way. And I mean, even use you know Apple networks and PC. I mean, they use may use the Mac Mini to share their storage, you know, with a uh, one of our external devices. But we will have a solution. Actually, a couple of solutions we're looking at. One to enable to allow for other devices we already have to be put into a NAS or be operated now with NAS interface and then a, a, a NAS product that, that comes at a more, I hate to say entry level, but a, a more a, a more consumer level that still maintains the quality and the ease of use and the things that we want. There's just a lot of comfort. I mean, it's tough. There's a lot of, as you get into the NAS products that you really want to have, they get really expensive. And you, you look at the NAS products that you know are reasonable, and they have a lot of caveats, and you know we want to kind of we want to have that really good NAS solution, you know, without the uh, the user caveats that you know, create support issues and reliability and access and such. Next question, Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asks: Will there be an OWC hub that supports more than two monitors on a standard M1 M2 laptop? You know, right now, of course, we have the, the dual port. Technically, you can buy two of uh, the the dual port adapters and use the second and get a third display. Uh, the treasure is yes in the future, and uh, without going into a lot of detail, we're going to in our next uh, lineup of docs, which is it, it will be more honestly uh, uh, built around the uh, the new Thunderbolt uh, 8120 interface, but so with backwards compatibility, you know, we we will be adding some flexibility there that's going to enable it. We have actually have a Thunderbolt five, and and what's coming is going to be really exciting in that space. But today, I mean, we're just offering the dual. I mean. Why Apple uh, limited the the M1 M2 Thunderbolt, which is why they can't call it Thunderbolt Four, by the way. One of Thunderbolt 4's 
requirements is that you can support two displays off of off the Thunderbolt bus, which you need it. You, you have to have a Pro or a Max to uh, to do that without trickery. If I say trickery, I guess there's another way to add a third display to our second display without display link. But nonetheless, it, for normal plug and play uh, solution today, we have you can add a second display or a Mac Mini. You can go three because you can use the HDMI out. Then you can plug our uh, dual uh, HDMI adapter in to have a one via Thunderbolt and one via display uh, display link to have that third display. Uh, I know I'm taking a long time to answer this question, but there's limitations of what Apple did and actually just what the platform has. And then you have bandwidth overhead. But in the future, you know, we're looking to make it if somebody does need a third display, you know, make that I'd say more accessible without having to have a dedicated uh, dock that has to report. Apple, another technology that's out there, we see it on the Windows side. And I think a lot of I think it confuses a lot of people when you look at these docs that say they're for Mac. There's solutions out there that show, you know, three and four displays being connected to a single computer. Uh, MST technology is 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 out there for to, to actually to multiply uh, display capability. Apple likes to maintain really high performance and without compromise. MST has a lot of compromises, or so certainly risk for certain people that are in production spaces that they expect performance and frame rates and, and resolution. So Apple does not support MST. So those docs that. You know, whether our docs and there are ways for us to we can it's very easy to do on Windows. You know, there's it's it's more uh, complicated to do it right on a, a Mac. Now, if you have an M1, if you have an M1 or M2 that's a you know a Pro Max or Ultra, you can get the uh, the dual uh, HDMI adapter plus use your Thunderbolt to have those three external displays. Actually, more than three external. I displays. get four. <laughs> I get four. <laughs> I, I routinely have four connected to my uh, to my Mac Studio. I am, um, let's go to the next question. I can go to five then. Sorry, my Chris Fenwick from Emeryville, California asked, although I own a lot of your products, I'm still confused by the difference between a dock and a hub. Can you explain? In the US, let's, in Thunderball, it doesn't matter, honestly. You know, we call the uh, the hub a hub because, I mean, its primary purpose was to be a hub point for additional Thunderbolt channels. And that was, I mean, I think we created a little bit of confusion there, although others fall on. If it's Thunderbolt, it's never it's it's different than the USB world. But if we look at a USB, if we look at the USB space, it's really a clear delinear between what's a hub and a dock and USB. If it's a hub, it's just a dumb device that you know, takes a USB, whatever it might be, five gigabit, ten gigabit, maybe it's USB four in, and gives you more ports. And it has a chipset within that's just that's divvying up the uh, the bandwidth. Actually, typically giving whatever bandwidth to every port that's in the dock or in the hub, I should say. And filtering into one port and the computer in a hub doesn't even know what's connected to it there's no power management there's no power delivery from the hub typically it may be bus power it may have external power but it's just a dumb device that's allowing multiple devices to come into the computer and the big difference then between a hub and a dock in the usb world which is why we call a travel dock a travel dock and not a travel hub is the power management and it's not just power management in terms of being able to provide bus power you know with a dock like our travel dock, you can plug external your USB-C adapter that will power your laptop directly. You can plug through the dock and it will power, it will pass that power, power the dock and pass that power to power the computer. But the most important thing in a dock and the USB side, when it is a dock, and I'm emphasizing dock when it's a dock, the computer actually is communicating with the dock and doing power management. It knows, especially in bus powered mode, it knows what devices are connecting and what has priority. It won't drop a hard drive 
that's doing data transfer or is connected in a state that needs to be maintained during sleep as opposed to a keyboard or a mouse. When you plug a hub into a computer, it has no way, it, it knows that there are devices out there, but there's no knowledge, there's no identification, there's no power management, there's no communication with those devices for it to know that needs to be, that, that needs to maintain connection or power. It, it, it's a priority device. A dock has that, I guess, that intelligent level where there's communication between the computer and the, uh, especially in the case of bus powered uh, docks, it knows what's going on and is going to, man- is going to maintain priority and, and not do something that's going to risk your uh, workflow, your data, et cetera. Larry, is it safe to say that um, if you're concerned that you can't go wrong buying a dock and just avoid hubs and considering this? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then just out of curiosity on the panel here, uh, maybe on the gallery view, how many people are using your products? And I'm curious. I, I think you found your tribe here, Larry. <laughs> so anyway, uh, let's go to the next question. Next question coming to you from George A. Kennedy Jr. in Washington, D.C. Larry, OWC entered the SDCFE Express market a few months back. What makes the OWC cards different from the rest? I'll tell you what, we've been in NVMe and and, and NAND for me in that in the space that effectively supports with these cards, the technology of these cards for a really long time. And it's now actually been two years, over two years since we began to enter into the space. And I'll be honest with you, when we first, you know, looked at the space, you know, we really came in with a uh, an over uh, simplistic view of, yeah, it's just another, you know, SSD. And as we got involved with it, we saw that just how complex especially today and with the performance that's happening with the different cameras, the different codecs and all these different cameras require that. I mean, it, it's a very, uh, say this is a very complex space. It requires a lot of qualification. And we spent, have spent, you know, endless hours making sure that when we put a compatibility chart out there, it absolutely works. And it's not just something that we know because of the camera maker specs. I, there's a we have some we don't have a video out yet just on what we did with our SD and our CF Express, but it's it's mixed into some of the videos that we've been publishing lately. We have these cameras, everything we bring everything in house and we test. And it's actually uh, you know, just a from a core build difference. You know, we're it's absolutely a premium product built for reliability and maximum performance that doesn't compromise reliability or lifespan. The other aspect is we actually are testing everything and we've found things that are being advertised for and from big brands. Honestly, brands have been established for a while that you know, you know, kind of it's surprising that must not be tested with these cameras because the camera makers, and it's neat, we're actually now involved, you know, we're on the CF Express board and we're involved with the standards uh, that are being incorporated now. I mean, it's a you know, we have really good technical, you know expertise and understanding and we're not just building a product looking at camera specs and saying we meet these specs you know we're engaged with the camera makers identifying bugs identifying issues in you know their devices and working with them on the standards working with the board on the standards so that the product number one so that hopefully everybody's i mean everybody's solution works when they buy it but most importantly we have an inside really kind of inside track on a lot of these things from the experience we have in NAND from our care for that quality and reliability and that testing that, you know, if you go back a decade, I, I will say it was, and this is the same with a lot of things. It was really easy to bring out a product, meet certain specifications or use this chipset and everything just magically worked. Today, it's it's a very different world. 
And what definitely makes our product different, if you see something listed in a compatibility chart from us, it's not because we went out and measured the specs or saw the specs and make sure we meet something because we're testing in that camera. And a lot of times we test in these cameras. Essentially, we have a product right now that you know, is not introduced yet because there's you know, the, the specification that should be working according to but some of the competition. And we've tested, you know, it, it actually, there's a, there, it's not that cut and dry. And, you know, we're going to make sure our product, when we say it's compatible with that solution, it actually works. And that's just the car. That's just from the car technology, making sure, you know, on face value, these things work. The other piece that's coming very, very soon. And we've talked about it a little, and this is, I'm probably, I may get you know, slapped today when I bring it up, but we have a software layer that we're going to be putting into the market, another support piece that will be free for you know, all customers that have our media cards and our readers that will provide a level of software engagement for, for sanitation of the drive, for health monitoring, and even for a few firmware updates. And this is about that longevity thing. So that something changes, a new camera comes out, or even an existing camera updates the firmware then to bring a new feature on that may need something different in the, the media to support it. Our media will be firmware, actually, the media we're shipping today is firmware upgradable. And that's something that nobody that I'm aware of has done. And this software will work with all, and this is another difference. You know, we've not been, we're, we've just entered the media space, but we've made sure that the software we're bringing out, which is going to be called Energize, which again, we'll do the, uh, the sanitation, it's going to be the support firmware updates, health checking. It will work with our, it's, it will require an OWC a media reader because there's specific things that we have to enable within the, uh, within the reader to support, you know, these functions. But we've made this software so that it works with our previous docs. So any of our devices that have SD readers, maybe one exception, the other stuff will be upgradable, firmware upgradable to support Energize and everything that we've been shipping and, and are shipping today supports this. So you have our cards. And you have our readers, which, by the way, are also the fastest readers on the market, which we discovered through this process of testing. You know, we said, what are the reviewers using? We went and bought that stuff and said, huh, the readers we put in our docs are actually faster than you know, the readers people are benching cards with. But to the point, you know, we're not just providing a, a, a media solution that we claim is reliable. We're providing something that we've tested for reliability, we've tested for compatibility, and we're bringing out that we're bringing out that other value add, so that it's not just something you take our word for. Right. Uh, you know what's going on with the card. You have the tools to keep it at peak performance, which that sanitize does. Keep the card clean and keep the card fast, and keep and, it. And so the sanitize is kind of like initializing it again, like cleaning out you know the the registers so that they're ready to to take it on. So there's not not a lot of cruft that's building up from a constant write in write in erase system, right? Correct. You, you even can do that you with erase everything, you're not really clearing it. Correct. On an SSD, I mean, erase is looking split fast, mm -hmm. depending on how it does it, because it's just a, uh, it's, it can be a, it's a, a it just ignore the stuff that's there. <laughs> like, yeah, just, exactly. Like a, it just take, take the header off like that, that, just pretend that doesn't exist. It's still there, but it doesn't, but it's not, it, you're writing over it um, at that, at that point. It just says it's okay to write over it. And these, and for those who are listening, the CF Express is the new, newer screaming fast storage for cameras and so on and so forth of seven, is it like 1700 uh, megabytes a second? Um, yeah. yeah, it's incredible. Correct. Incredibly fast. Um, uh, I, I, uh, every time I look at these cards, and we'll jump into the next question here, but I, I had to build, we had a 444 uncompressed camera. I still have it. It's behind me, I think, that, um, that was doing 1080p. And, uh, and, and this was in 
2007 or six or something like that. And we built a RAID from scratch just so it could get up to 250 mega, megabytes a second. <laughs> that, was the, that was like, we, and it cost like two grand to, to, to be able to capture from the camera. And I just look at these little cards and I'm just like, holy smokes. Uh, anyway, next, next question. From Steve Yuroff in Madison, Wisconsin, asking, does OWC have product designers on staff or do you design your products in partnership with outside firms? We have a full engineering team uh, in the U.S. as well as in uh, Taiwan. And, you know, we, we used to do it all in the U.S. Or we try, I should rather say we tried to do it all in the U.S. and found that all the chipset makers, all the people we need to interface with are in Asia. So having that engineering team that can interface in real time, you know, stuff that took, literally took months to solve when we tried to do it all in the U.S. when we hit, you know, some sort of bump. Being able to walk down the street, literally blocks from, you know, where our operation is, you know, bring a product and, and have it have a conversation with an engineer, you know, whether it's about display link, as media, et cetera, Marvell, meant that problems got solved in hours instead of well, again, it could go on for months going back and forth overnight. Right. So we do the majority of our engineering is done in-house. We do partner with firms, but in terms of, you know, we really wanted to take control of that. You know, if I go back 15 years, it was all a you know, partnership. You know, we did the qualification, you know, we really added to it's just it's, it's more than just putting chipsets in boxes even as an working with an odm partner and anybody can throw a bunch of chipsets together the qualification and the fine tuning and especially the software pieces which is where you know that's all us based you know that's where the uh, i guess you could say the sauce is but in 2017 2018 to really step up and really elevate as we found you know what we we're doing in the us wasn't wasn't enough. It wasn't fast enough. You know, we actually right. bought a, a company that we used to partner with that was Inextron and Akidio. Now we were driving innovation at one point. I mean, when they brought Akidio, we thought we were driving innovation for them and ultimately uh, you know, brought that company into the ODBC family to really, again, step up and mainly have that presence in Asia where we could have that, those relationships and the live interface with all the chips, even the Intel team. I mean, that's a lot of that happens today in uh, Taiwan. That's it's moving around, which is great. But short answer to that question, I have a hard time with short answers. Is yes, the majority, <laughs> That's good. the vast majority of the engineering is done in house. Yeah. Next question. Ronnie Hofsey from Trumso, Norway asks on a MacBook M1 or 2, Mac Mini M1 or 2, iMac, and similar, <laughs> what Thunderbolt dock with minimum one gigabytes per second Ethernet port would work great with Dante? Now, again, this is, I, I'm stepping outside my, my absolute areas of expertise, but Dante is audio. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, Dante, network audio. Yeah, today, and these, uh, the AVB, because of Apple uh, not supporting uh, the chipset that we use in all of our uh, docs that have Ethernet, you know, does support AVB, but Apple does not implement it, you know, at the driver level on the Mac. And there's, because it's a native uh, port, it's very difficult. It's complicated to override Apple's driver and 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 effectively take its place. So unfortunately, there is not a a one gigabyte, a one gigabit per second rather Ethernet solution today that is not that I'm not aware of anywhere. Period that supports Dante. You'd have to go up to our Pro Dock or to our 10 gigabit adapter to get AVB. So that's the, the I won't say it's the unfortunate answer, but you you need to go to a 10 gigabit adapter for uh, for that AVB. Is it possible to AVB in a one gigabit? Yes, but it's unfortunately complicated in terms of it wouldn't be driverless, right. and you'd still have a, a relatively high cost because of the uh, the the niche audience. So, yep. ten gigabit is the way to go, and the Pro Dock, which has that ten gigabit built into it, is really a great way to go. 
And he, you know, I know Jason mentioned earlier on the GoDoc doesn't have a fan. Our current generation ProDoc also doesn't have a fan as we did an immense amount of engineering so that the heat is dissipated, even under full load, you know, nonstop. Mm-hmm. So that no fans required, and there is no throttling uh, of the port. You at one gigabit, you never have throttling. Ten gigabits, you know, the first product had a fan because that again bandwidth data. High, high performance requires power. Yep, and absolutely. And being able to overcome that in the product. Yeah, next question. Rajan Shandil from Los Angeles, California, asks: Impressive, how many computer products you've saved from the landfill? Do you have a personal philosophy about upcycling and reuse? Sure. Yeah. You know, my dad was in the you know, the paper industry, and I mean, it was, you know, again, waste not, want not was always there, recycling and, and, and working with recycled paper products, understanding just the cycle in, in that industry. Uh, you know, really, there was a, a lot of continued use, you know, kind of shaped, you know, how I got into or how I looked at, you know, the computer side. And the computer side was the same thing. You look at all these capabilities, you know, what can we do internal? Well, it used to be what can we do internal and and what can we hack internally to, to, to take it further today? It's, of course, what we can plug in external. But, you know, certainly, uh, the, you know, the strong belief of everything is don't lock people into things that require a specialty uh, you know, solution. I mean, keep everything open. You know, we want to earn people's trust, not force them into an ecosystem. Not oh, once we got you, we got you. So all those things roll in terms of, you know, give people the flexibility, you know, in general, to by what they bring into yeah. their equation, you know, what they need to get their job done. And, and hopefully we're a, a part of that workflow and, and keeping that computer going for as long as possible. Yeah. Now, why, why replace something that's already working? And certainly, you know, I look at software. I mean, you have a workflow that's awesome and just need a bit more performance rather than having to reinvent the wheel with a new computer. Hey, if you can add some more storage at memory, you know, speed up the processor so you can keep that going. I mean, that's, priceless and people say well geez i could buy a new computer for twice the price of that upgrade said, yeah well then you got the software you got everything else that you know and the time and time right. is you know precious and if something's working that's why i mean it's surprising i mean people i mean do you still have these you know mac pro people are still getting mac pro uh cheese graders 2010 and 2012s mac pro 2013s are still in high demand because of workflows that, that are working perfectly that you know meet the need i mean yes we could you could elevate with you know there's all these great new capabilities but there's that it's like anything else. I mean, do I do I need it today? And when I do need it, I mean, the longer if this is serving me today, the longer that serves me. By the time it is time to upgrade and move forward, the technology I need, you know, will cost less, be more evolved, and be easier to uh, transition to. And then we have our used Macs now. I mean, we did that because it's like, geez, all these we have the capability to upgrade, right. enhance, and service these systems. So that was. An interesting tangent that we got into, but that's another fast area. We just don't like to see things get wasted. We don't want to have a robot taking apart and shredding things. I mean, the, the but it's biggest so pretty, waste. It's so pretty to watch the robot to take it apart. It's like it's got the little thing going on. Anyway, uh, one, we have one more question. Then we're going to do one more demo. Um, so let's one more question, and then we'll go to the demo. Yeah, time flies. Ros- yeah. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana, asking, how have your instructional videos affected sales? Are they always a part of the new product discussion? You know, we need to be more consistent there, but they're you know really important. I mean, they again, education has been a mission of OWC since the beginning, and not just for our products. I mean, just in general. I mean, the more people know, the more they can get out of their solutions and 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 get the and, and know that there are things they can do with their computers with their technology. So, education period is is a core piece of you know what we do, and, and try to do that across the board, independent with the products, and also independent of the products. Yeah, one of the things that I, I often talk about with with this is that sometimes just knowing how to take full advantage of the product increases its value without any more engineering. You know, like if my microwave dive tomorrow, 
I would just buy another microwave. I don't have any, because all I know how to do is, it's got lots of cool things in my microwave, but all I know how to do is power and time, you know, and, 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 the, and mostly just time. Like, that's what we know how to do is time. And, okay. and, and, the, and it's because every time it says, if I put something in there, it says, go find the manual. A paper manual that was shipped with it 10 years ago is somewhere in the house that I should go look at. And one of the things that I've been noticing a lot of is coming, is coming out is a lot of products that I get now have a QR code on the back. And I just point my, I'm like, I don't understand how to use this. And I point my phone at the QR code and a little video pops up, shows you exactly how to put this together. And I was like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> you know, like, like it's, it's gotten that, that quick to make that happen. Now, Jason, I think has one more thing to show us before we get to the end of the hour. Uh, Jason, I'm going to throw it over to you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just, this is a way too small, um, way too small set of sticks and I'm trying not to drop this uh, 6K Pro with a really heavy lens on it. Um, so Larry and I were talking um, just around the, the idea of, um, in fact, coming back to fire or to um, to firmware. And um, I, I I just kind of mentioned in passing that I, I had bought one of these, um, Larry, what's the product called? Um, I just call them. Thank you. Uh, I call them jump drives because that's what they look like and they behave like. And this one, uh, let me see if I can get a little bit closer in here. Yeah, there we go. So this one, um, you know, kind of looks like your standard combination uh, jump drive. So you've got USB-C, right, on the top. And, um, and the nice little piece of engineering that allows you to also have what, you know, is that same set of things that looks like USB 3, but is actually USB 3.1, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, generation 2, or is this USB generation three, 2? should be 3.2, but it's a 10, it's 10 gigabits USB. Right. So to that end, um, I mentioned in passing that it it is far and away the fastest jump drive I've ever seen in any, um, in any form factor, um, let alone... With this, you know, I could plug it into a 486 style pace. Um, and so we started looking at the data stream and throughput of the 6K, um, Blackmagic 6K camera. And um, I said, is there any reason that, that this shouldn't be able to record in 6K raw? Um, and we couldn't come up with one. So... You said, send them back. Um, I think there's a firmware update that you might be missing. And to that end, um, all I'm going to do here, just because there's a cage on it, is just plug a you know, 10-foot extension in here and uh, plug this in. And it, it will format to XFAT. Uh, I guess I didn't, in fairness, try it in, in Mac OS uh, format. And um, it not only records but records from you know front to back all the way through and i've i've done this repeatedly never and, ever and Larry, ever the, drops a frame what's the max uh throughput on that on that jump drive it hits about 900 megs a second at peak with the sustained data rate i believe it needs to be over 400 megs a second which is with the firmware update you know we released this originally uh what i say in version it's a quiet update, but I mean, reliability is first for most. We were still testing heat, which mm -hmm. is fine with the higher performance, but that took longer to uh, certify. So firmware update, it provided the uh, the right speed capability to support that that camera. And we're actually certifying our Envoy uh, Pro Electrons as well as this particular product you know, for that kind of camera use. We don't talk, I mean, 
you know, companies come out there. There's, I mean, I see all sorts of crazy claims out there where, you know, they'll look at a speed and say, hey, yeah, this works with everything. You know, we don't come out and say things work with something until we've tested it and proven it and, and really beat it up. And Jason actually beat us to the, to the punch on this one, which was fantastic. What, what would be the theoretical maximum for one of these, um, for the throughput on a small drive like that? Uh, I have a, we'll just say, I, I have a couple of the 8K or the 12Ks from Blackmagic, and we're always trying to find the faster, the fastest way to get data off of it um, so that we can run 8K records and, you know, high frame rate and so on and so forth. What do you think is the kind of the, what should I, what we, what should we consider this is as good as it's going to get? Well, right now, the limit on the black magic, I mean, it's, it's a 10 gigabit USB-C connection. Mm -hmm. So you're limited actually on the write speed there at, you know, roughly about 1,100 megs a second, right, which right. are FX drives, which are a little bit bigger support, you know, sustained through. And then on the read side, which you can get it offloaded and ingested, you hit that full 2,800 megs a second when you plug it in via Thunderbolt. The FX right. supports, good thing about the FX, it was the first solution in the market that supported both, in addition to supporting 5 gigabit USB, it also supported 10 gigabit USB for in such enabled systems and then all the way up to Thunderbolt. So that's your, that would be your fastest solution. Yep. Very good. Larry, thank you so much for joining us for a, for an hour. It's really, really no, my pleasure. I can't you. believe the hour's already uh, blown by. I think we may, may try to get you to come back and geek out with us every once in a while. Are you open to that? I look, I love it. I mean, I often try to, I love just to be around just to, to help answer questions. Awesome. Awesome. Very, very good. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And thanks to Jason for uh, putting, putting together this and putting together uh, and putting together the demos. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much to the, to the producers who asked all the great questions and kept everything moving from all over the world. I think we got a couple continents in there uh, with those questions. Uh, so really, really great work. Uh, thanks to the panel. Can't do this without you, of course. And uh, thanks to the um, amazing team on the back end. You know, it, it, I think we always want to remind people that there's 20 or 30 people that was required to make this show get off the ground every single day, seven days a week. And so it's just an incredible team uh, that puts that together and uh, spread out all over the world. Uh, we traveled, um, the, the, the questions traveled 84,456 um, miles today, 135,000 kilometers, and that is 764 million bananas for scale. So, um, so, so keep that in mind. And now we're going to go ahead and jump into After Hours. Hope to see you. NAB, everybody. Yes, NAB. Oh, we're going to be there. <laughs> we're definitely going to be there. So we're, we're so excited about that. Are you going to have... Are you, are you going to have a big booth, Larry? How big is your... Larry. Hey, Larry, we, are you... You can have a booth at NAP. This is the part where we whisper. Yeah, we whisper. We just sit there talk underneath the, the, the credits. So there's credits there, but we just keep talking. It's, it's hard when you're new. <laughs> All right, we're going to jump. Good show, everybody.